I am really excited to be joined here today with two people who have frankly, personally played a really formative role in my professional development as a journalist and politico of sorts. Uh, Nathan Robinson, founder of Current Affairs Magazine, the first person, I believe, or one of the first people to ever publish me and put me on the map. Thank you so much for, for joining us here today. So nice to be back with you, Brie. And Glenn Greenwald, one of the founders of The Intercept, another journalistic institution that has been so kind enough as to hire me and who is now independent, Pulitzer Prize winning, plaudits up the wazoo, um, who's shown an enormous amount of journalistic courage and integrity. Thank you so much for joining us today from Brazil. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I believe this is my record-breaking, or maybe record-setting, <laughs> third appearance on this podcast. So I think I we think agreed last right. time that if I came on again, I was going to have some kind of co-host rights, which I may exercise. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me, Nathan. Thank you for, for doing it as well. So we're here today because Nathan recently wrote an article critiquing both you, Glenn, and Matt Taibbi, who we recently also had on the show, about what he perceives to be some kind of ideological slippage that you've displayed of late, in which, I, and I'll let you put it in your own terms, Nathan, but the gist of it is that there seems to be a kind of a lack of skepticism about certain right-wing arguments that have been arguably embraced by you, Glenn. Nathan, how would you frame your core disagreement with Glenn? I wouldn't say ideological slippage, exactly. You know, I've been an admirer of Glenn's work since the, I first started doing political writing. Uh, it was a big inspiration to me. And I would not say, as some people say, Glenn Greenwald has changed. Uh, I don't want to litigate that exactly. It might be just that I've uh, noticed things that I disagree with that I didn't notice before. I'm not saying that Glenn has gone conservative, but that I have... And I tried to make this a substantive critique of a few points that I think that I see he, him making that I think are both wrong and frankly dangerous and that, and that sort of misunderstand the, the workings of, of power in, in the world. So, for example, I, I start with a discussion that he had with Glenn Beck where he's talking about the authoritarianism of the Democratic Party. Now, I detest a lot of the Democratic Party. I'm a staunch critic of the Democratic Party. I've written, written books about Bill Clinton, endless stuff about Joe Biden, right? But, you know, Glenn said to Glenn Beck that he couldn't agree more when Glenn Beck said the Democrats were fascistic for talking about the end of the filibuster, adding extra states, packing the Supreme Court. And uh, Glenn Greenwald said that, uh, you know, ending the the Senate is because uh, the you know, a democratic idea of ending the Senate is because they're a genuinely repressive and tyrannical party. Now, I, I think that's that's a, a complete misunderstanding of the situation, right? The Senate is the enemy of democracy. It was set up as the enemy of democracy. The idea of enfranchising Puerto Rico and D.C. and even of, of packing the Supreme Court is partly because the United States government is counter-majoritarian, counter-democratic, and has been that way since the beginning. I don't think these are signs of creeping authoritarianism by the Democratic Party. Uh, frankly, the Democratic Party isn't going to abolish the Senate because, in fact, far from being authoritarian, 
and they're mostly just ineffectual and useless. But if they did start taking these ideas seriously of getting rid of the filibuster and such, it would be a move towards democracy and not a move away from it. And when Glenn Greenwald said to Tucker Carlson in the advance of the uh, 2020 election, the Democratic Party is uh, likely to take over at least one branch of government, which is an alarming proposition because they are authoritarian. I think that actually Republican power is still more terrifying than Democratic power. And also that Republicans are stronger than they necessarily look. They're constantly trying to make themselves look weak. But in fact, they have functional veto power over pretty much any legislation, right? It's not possible to pass legislation without getting Republican agreements because of the filibuster. If you look at the state level, Republicans are trying to restrict abortion rights, deny health care to transgender youth, roll back voting rights, uh, control school curricula, ban cities from imposing uh, paid sick leave, uh, all sorts of stuff. And they're try- Republicans try and create a narrative that the left are really in control. Now, it's a quote from Matt Taibbi, who says that all the power is on the side opposite Fox News. Uh, Glenn has not said that in particular, but he has reinforced what I think is a mistaken understanding of American politics that doesn't that doesn't see because he has said that the threat of authoritarianism, for example, didn't come at all from Donald Trump. It comes more from the Democratic Party, which he has described as fascist. Obviously, I don't like the way that many Democrats are, you know, show fealty of deference to the FBI, CIA, etc. And, and that ought to be criticized. But I think we really need to understand it is very important to be clear that, to my mind, I share Noam Chomsky's opinion that Donald Trump was one of the worst criminals in human history because of his acceleration towards climate disaster, because of his firing of inspectors general, because of his refusal to accept the election result, because of immigration, labor rights, every issue you want to take. Uh, the Republican Party's agenda is absolutely terrifying. And as bad as the Democrats are, I think it is really, really important to be clear on that distinction. And I think my critique of Glenn, my fundamental critique of Glenn, is that I see a lot of stuff attacking, sometimes, you know, actual bad tendencies among liberals that I don't think recognizes just how bad that is. And in response to my critique, you know, the things that Glenn said about me are like, you know, the the online liberal left, this quote, is trying desperately to show they're not like Chris Hayes, Nathan and those like him built their self-image on being, being radical leftists different from their MSNBC watching parents, but now they struggle to find any differences. This is all they've got. Uh, but we don't give a shit about their dreary dogma or authoritarian culture and their captivity to the Democratic Party and are free for their repressive attempts to use in-group coercion to enforce adherence to trite liberal pieties. Now, I just think this is totally wrong. My parents would rather set themselves on fire than watch MSNBC. I am incredibly critical of the Democratic Party. And I just think that it's important to have a nuanced understanding. And I don't think that this attack on, on, on my motives really does a service to what I think are substantive critiques of the, of the positions that he's voiced. Glenn, do you have a reaction to any part of that in particular? I think it's a good starting point. You know, I think that, first of all, if you listen to what Nathan said, there was a lot of kind of genuflecting to the idea that he views the Democratic Party as flawed, as doing bad things. He certainly has expressed criticisms in the past of figures like Bill and Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden. That's all certainly true. But if you listen to the worldview that he just laid out, 
it is a very pro-democratic party, anti-republican party worldview. It's something that would fit very comfortably within the confines of, say, MSNBC or CNN. They have leftists on there who, like Sam Cedar or Mehdi Hassan, whose basic worldview is, is what Nathan laid out, which is, look, I have my differences with the democratic party, but when push comes to shove, like when the rubber meets the road, you're damn right I'm going to be giving my support to the Democratic Party because they're much better and much less dangerous than the Republican Party is. I think that's the basic framework in which Nathan resides. I mean, I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth. I think that's more or less what he said explicitly. You know, and that's been Noam Chomsky's basic argument that he kind of rolls out once every four years as well, which is obviously I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, you have to vote for them because the Republican Party is worse. So let me just let me just make a couple points just because of how sure. much Nathan said and also the, the the lengthy article that he wrote that I haven't really addressed, although there was the article by John Jonathan Cook, the former Guardian editor that I think did a really a reporter that I think did a really good job of kind of isolating what he thought was driving these differences. So first of all, I do think that one of the things we have to acknowledge is that politics has changed greatly because of the Trump years. There's really no denying that. I mean, you can see, for example, that alliances have shifted. Former Bush Cheney operatives, like the worst ones, the people who were most hated by liberals throughout the, the war on terror, are now MSNBC hosts. Liberals poured money into the Lincoln Project, a, a group run by the slimiest scumbag GOP operatives like Steve Schmidt and, and Rick Wilson. Neocons are now explicitly Democrats, David Frum and Bill Kristol. Jen Rubin, Max Boot, you look at, you know, liberal media outlets like MSNBC and CNN, and they're filled with nothing but ex-CIA operatives, FBI agents, federal prosecutors. These are the heroes, the kind of North Stars and icons of the Democratic Party, which was not really true four years ago. Four years ago, Bill Kristol and David Frum were still Republicans, and now they're not. They're now Democrats. And so something has obviously changed in the word work. And then beyond that, you look at polling data where the huge gap exists between Republicans and Democrats on their views of institutions that Nathan referenced, but kind of dismissively so, but that I think are at the center of American political life. Things like the CIA and the FBI, Democrats and liberals hold those institutions, those security state institutions in much higher esteem, much higher than Republicans do. You, there's almost no space in Democratic Party circles for criticism of the CIA and the FBI or the NSA or the Pentagon, as we saw this weekend when, you know, General Miley, the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman, went before the Senate and the only people who were criticizing him were on the right and people on the left were kind of saying, this is outrageous. How can you criticize a war hero? I think it's not just the alliances, but the values that have shifted really a lot. So that analysis that would have applied in 2015 to whether Democrats are better than Republicans, I don't think is really quite applicable. And I think it shifted a lot of uh, people's perspectives because as the political framework around you shifts, so too does your perspective. That's one thing. The other thing is, I think one of the big differences that, that Nathan and I have is the question of, of what is power. To me, the question is not that interesting, like, is Donald Trump worse than Joe Biden? Or is Donald Trump, like, does he have worse views than Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi? For me, the question in politics is, Who's likely to do the most damage? And I think one of the big divisions in liberal left politics is how you view Donald Trump. Like, did you view him as this kind of unprecedented, fascistic or even Hitlerian type figure who was in this unprecedented way going to usher in fascism and posed an existential threat to American democracy? Because if the answer to that is yes, 
then I think it justifies a whole range of things. Not even justifies, but almost requires a whole range of views in order to combat it. You would want to fortify the FBI and the CIA and online censorship and domestic surveillance if you really believe that this political movement was about to destroy American democracy and implement actual fascism, there would you of course you would hug Bill Crystal and and David Frum and John Brennan and Michael Hayden or whoever was on your side in battling against that. That would be rational to do. I never saw Trump that way. I see Trump as this like very weak figure who never got close to even trying to, let alone being able to overcome the enormous institutional authority that exists in the United States that's designed to preserve status quo stability. And then the last point I wanted to make is just really quickly, Bray, is like when, you know, like Nathan read several quotes of mine where I'm talking about Democrats being authoritarian and fascistic and the like, my leading examples are not things like wanting to do away with the Senate or anything like that. That was more like an example that I gave in that one interview of how Democrats will try and change any rules as long as they believe it's in their interest to do so. I don't think they're trying to get rid of the filibuster because they view it as a Jim Crow instrument. To the contrary, the Democrats also use the filibuster over and over and over and over again to prevent Republican majoritarian legislation when they were in the minority. I think they want to do D.C. statehood and get rid of the filibuster because it will help them now. But what I'm talking about when I talk about authoritarianism is the fact that it is the case that the Democratic Party's coalition consists of not just the CIA and the FBI and the NSA and the Pentagon, who were radically against Donald Trump and therefore on the side of the Democrats, but also Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And the most disturbing incident for me, or one of them, because that kind of is illustrative of why I say the Democrats are so authoritarian, is we, three weeks before the election – when the New York Post got its hands on an archive by that was from the son of the presidential frontrunner, Joe Biden, that contained a lot of personal stuff that never should have been published, but a lot of stuff that reflected on his ethics and on his business dealings in places like China and Ukraine, the Democratic Party demanded that they that that story be censored and Silicon Valley monopolist joined with the Democratic Party to literally censor and make it impossible to discuss that story on the internet. You couldn't post links to the New York Post story. You couldn't post links to any other media outlet that was posting it. The same thing happened after January 6th when Parler became the most popular app downloaded in all of the United States. And AOC and Ro Khanna went on Twitter and said, we demand that Apple and Google and Amazon, Silicon Valley monopolist, destroy parlor and then overnight they did. So that to me is this joining, this union of state and corporate power, which is the classic definition of fascism, in order to shield Democratic Party authority from challenge. It doesn't mean I don't think there's authoritarian components to the Republican Party. It just means that I think the Democratic Party, in terms of these new coalitions that has formed in the Trump years, has become deeply authoritarian as well. Just to interject, so I think that that's really a clear ting up of the issues. But a few things, Glenn, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, you have defended or would come out in defense of the NSA or the FBI or any aspect of the national security apparatus, though I think you're right, Glenn, that plenty of liberals do. And I, and I say that just because I do think there's a bit of a conflating here happening between someone who is closer to a Mehdi Hassan MSNBC host, you know, don't disrespect Mehdi, but and Nathan, who I also th I think there's space between me and Nathan, 
right? But I, I also don't think it's helpful to. But, 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 but I totally, I totally agree with you. Like, I think, I think Medi would also, you know, if I asked him, say that he thinks the CIA is a pernicious presence in American life. I have no doubt that Nathan would. I don't mean to imply at all that Nathan's a defender of the FBI and the CIA. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that. I think that I think that that's a lot more important of an issue than Nathan does. Like it plays a lot bigger role in my worldview than it does in his. That's why I spend a lot more time talking about the union between security state power, Silicon Valley, monopolistic power and the Democratic Party. And it plays a big. So I don't mean at all to suggest that Nathan is a fan of the FBI. I don't think he's Bill Kristol. I think there's huge differences ideologically between Nathan and establishment liberals. But I think that. The worldview that Nathan laid out, despite those differences, nonetheless brings him to the same destination as those other people. I think that's a really important point, because it seems to me that throughout a lot of this, it's a matter of where we put the emphasis and what we perceive to be the biggest threat. And Glenn, what seems to motivate you a lot, and which I frankly empathize with in my own work is that I tend to be attracted to issues that not as many people are talking about because it feels like that's where I'm most useful. And it feels like that's those are areas where there's a lot more potential for overreach and abuse because people aren't watching them as closely. And I was frustrated similarly by the vote blue no matter who dynamic and the fact that it really hinges on getting people to say and embrace the idea that Trump is worse because that opens up a whole panoply of like a whole chain of chain reaction that says, well, then if you agree that Trump is worse, you have to do this, that, that and the other. And what that does is obscure other paths, other strategic avenues that one could go down if you didn't have that kind of absolutist framework. So, Nathan, I wonder what how you feel about the idea that the, the, the difference might be not substantive in many respects, but about this question of emphasis and whether it's necessary for someone to constantly emphasize that Trump does present some kind of threat in order to be credibly heard on other kinds of threats that exist. Emphasis is actually an important description of, of I think, the core difference between Glenn and myself, because one of the reasons that I see, and again, that Chomsky saw Trump as the greatest criminal in human history, is because if your emphasis is on climate, if it's on uh, labor rights, which uh, Trump just shredded, if it's on the rights of immigrants, if it's on workplace safety, then, you know, Trump is obviously completely monstrous, and it's important to do a lot to stop him. Now, I don't accept, and it's often heard, and uh, this was in Jonathan Cook's article too, this idea that if you think Donald Trump is one of the worst criminals in, in human history, it justifies doing anything to stop him. Now, the reason that it doesn't is precisely because we can see what the consequences of letting that justify almost anything would be, right? If you say, you know, Trump is such a huge threat, thus we can do anything, including censorship, including mass murder, right? Uh, Where do you stop? And then you lose all of your principled commitments. So I think it's, but I I mean, again, and I share with with Chomsky the belief that you can hold these two beliefs at the same time, which is that uh, you don't have to downplay the very 
serious threat that Trump poses on all these issues that matter a lot to me. I understand why they are sort of, I, I, I don't want to say that Glenn cares about them less, but that, you know, your focus has always been on a lot to do with surveillance, censorship, free speech, and, and such. But if that is your, your main focus, then it, it is understandable that for someone whose main focus is, you know, the, for example, the fact that the West of the United States is about to be completely on fire or the fact that uh, buildings are collapsing in a deregulatory culture, right? We would have a very different view of what matters. I mean, I look at state legislatures and I see them currently trying to basically reshape school curricula uh, for political reasons. That really, really deeply alarms me. So in, in some ways, we do just have a different focus and that different focus gives us sort of leads to a different assessment of how serious, in fact, the threat is. Yeah, so just on that, a couple of things, I think, because it gets to like one of the nubs of of the different ways of looking at this. So Bree, I think what you said was very perceptive and also very important. I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to emphasize that. You know, it is true. Like when I started writing about politics, you know, remember, I didn't have a media platform, right? I just created a blog. And the reason I did that was because I thought there were things that were being ignored or overlooked that deserved attention. Not because I thought those issues were the most important issues. I was writing about Article 2 theories of executive power and the NSA scandal that broke when the New York Times reported that there was spying going on domestically without warrants. If you, It didn't mean that I thought that that was a more important issue than, say, income inequality or criminal justice overly punitive criminal justice, you know, things I ultimately did write write about. I was writing about those things because I felt like that's where I could make an impact. That's where I could make a difference because that was the stuff that nobody else was talking about. So when I go to sit, I mean, it's funny. I saw some video today that that I did where I did a Democracy Now! segment that somebody had posted about Russiagate. And I, there was like three minutes of me saying that all the reasons why I thought Trump was this incredible menace, this grave threat to the functionality of a healthy democracy, why he was incredibly corrupt, things that I've said over and over and over and over again. I mean, obviously, that's I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's ideology, nor of his governance. But I look at the media world around me and I see that pretty much everyone outside of like right wing news outlets are waking up every day and doing nothing but saying over and over how Trump is this enormous threat. People are writing best-selling books about it. Republicans are saying it and becoming heroes of, of the liberal media. NBC, ABC, CBS, the New York Times op-ed page, the Washington Post op-ed page, the papers themselves are all dominated by that similar theme. So when I think about how I can best use my platform, I don't think about, well, let me go ahead and just echo what everyone else is already saying, because I don't think there's a lot of value in that. There may be value to me. My, my career would probably thrive more kind of seamlessly and effortlessly. I'd be less disliked or more well-liked if I were to do that. But in terms of the impact, I just don't think that that would make a lot of impact. There's all this stuff about Trump being the gravest danger was being said by everybody from like all those Republicans we just got done talking about to, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Rachel Maddow to Noam Chomsky and, and Nathan Robinson, that there was hardly like a need for me to be screaming from the rooftops about Trump's evil. And so instead, what I focused on were the things that I thought were being done to the Democratic Party in response to Trump that were incredibly dangerous, that were being overlooked, like really serious forms of authoritarianism or revitalization 
of neocon ideology and the FBI and the CIA as really dangerous institutions interfering in our democracy. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, I find it a little bit odd, this like sudden or in Chomsky's case, not sudden at all, like this almost monomaniacal focus on climate as the reason that 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 uh, Trump has to stand out as this grave evil. And I just had an email exchange with Chomsky where he defended that position by citing that argument again. <laughs> Because the reality is that for four years, nobody was talking about climate. Nobody was talking about climate. Overwhelmingly, the threat that Trump posed, according to most media outlets, was Russia, was the fact that he was blackmailed by Russia, that he was controlled by Russia. And a big part of my split with the left or liberalism became that I just didn't think that that was a real scandal from an evidentiary point of view. Like, I just didn't think it was true that he was in bed with the Russians, that he had colluded with the Russians, that he was being controlled by the Russians. And I also thought it was an incredibly dangerous thing. And, and one of my arguments all the time about Russiagate was all the stuff that Nathan just said about deregulating the economy. Part of the problem was all of that stuff was being drowned out because everybody was talking about Russia instead. This is important because I agree that, that Russiagate was all, all a bunch of bullshit. This is, this is the problem. And I think one of my critiques of the approach you take here is to say, well, everyone's criticizing Trump all the time. Therefore, we're going to go in a, in a different direction and examine the Democrats. But what you and I both know is that the criticisms that were being made of Donald Trump were frequently the totally wrong criticisms. As you said, nobody was talking about climate. Noam Chomsky was talking, he's been talking about climate the whole time and saying like that is the reason Trump is such a serious threat. This Russia bullshit. So yes, there's all this anti-Trump stuff, but it was totally unpersuasive, right? People, Trump came very close to winning re-election and he did that in spite of the fact yep, that, as yep. you would point out, of these news networks works that nobody watches or cares about, MSNBC, CNN, right, are going like, Trump is a terrible threat, he's a terrible threat, but then the arguments they give are completely unpersuasive. So the approach that I've taken and that I think Chomsky takes and is correct is to say, no, what we need, I mean, I wrote a whole article called Bad Ways to Criticize Trump, and one of the reasons I did a whole book about Trump, Anatomy of a Monstrosity, is that I believed that all of the anti-Trump stuff was totally ineffectual because it was not getting at the real sources of why the Trump's Republican agenda was such a serious threat. But why do you think that is, Nathan? Why do you think that is that if the Democrats care so much about climate and immigration and income inequality, they spend all their time talking about Russia instead of those things? Because most of them don't care about anything. <laughs> I agree. Exactly. Exactly. They do. Exactly. I agree totally. They don't give a shit about those things. No. Which is why, exactly so, but, and so, like, look, I think those things are dangers, those things that you just described. Probably have differences on how dangerous they are and whatever and how to best deal with them and, and the like. But I also think, and this is, I guess, what has frustrated me a lot about this kind of discourse over the last four years is even if you think Trump is dangerous, like Trump is one power center, in the United States, he's not, I don't even think he's close to the most powerful, even when he was president. But he, even if you want to say he was, there's tons of other power centers that were pushing it back against him all the time and were doing very dangerous things as well, often in the name of undermining him. And that's what was getting so little attention. And in a lot of ways, American liberalism didn't just start ignoring that, but applauding it. Things like online censorship and 
you know, greater power in the hands of the FBI to track people they regard as domestic extremists and joining with Wall Street and Silicon Valley. You know, you say Trump almost won despite networks that nobody watches. It wasn't just despite that. It was Wall Street and Silicon Valley overwhelmingly funded the Democratic Party. Almost all institutional power was behind defeating Trump because they perceived him as this kind of unpredictable, unstable force. And so, you know, I think that there were a lot of dangerous things being undertaken by this very powerful coalition aligned against Trump that was receiving way too little attention. And even with Trump gone, still is receiving too little attention. But Nathan, I don't think he would disagree with with any of that, would you, Nathan? No, although I would say that I think some of it is a little illusory. Like, I think a lot of opposition to Trump was discursive rather than rather than substantive. And that ultimately, like, Trump is very, very good for the business community, right? Very few, very few of them actually, I, they might detest him as, as to like putting a very vulgar face on American capitalism, but, uh, you know, he gave them their tax breaks. They may say they dislike him, but not much, there's actually not much done to undermine him. But other than that, you know, a lot of that, a lot of those critiques, I, I certainly agree with. I got censored by The Guardian when I tried to write about Hunter Biden, so... Uh, I know this firsthand. The issue does seem to be about this proportionality point, because I know since I've had you as an editor, Nathan, I think that's something that you do that's very skillful, that makes it so that a lot of your arguments are heard by folks who might otherwise not hear them, is to put in a lot of caveats when you know you're going down a spicy road. So I remember writing, I think the first thing I ever wrote for Current Affairs, my article on identity politics, and the first like three paragraphs are me talking about what identity is, why identity is relevant, what is and isn't identity politics, why it's important for people to be able to make political arguments on the basis of their historically marginalized groups, all of that kind of stuff before I dig into my critique of the weaponization of identity politics. And I think that that gives a lot of people who might otherwise not listen to me or who thinks that, you know, a critique of identity politics is just a right winger who doesn't like to acknowledge the existence of race or racism. You know, it, it lays the foundation for them to trust me. And what it feels like sometimes is that that trust when it comes to Glenn, has been lost. And I think that some of that is unfair because people accuse anyone of who is critical of the Democratic Party as being a Trumper and yada, yada, yada. But I think that there is part of it, Glenn, that is potentially valid because whether or not you feel like you should have to build in some of those caveats, it would help you <laughs> if you did. And moreover, there are these moments, Nathan, you, are, uh, you wrote about this one exchange that Glenn Greenwald had with Glenn Beck, where Glenn Beck trots out a bunch of, I think, unfair criticisms of Democrats, one of which was the Senate, which I would agree with you on substance, Nathan, is an anti-democratic body. And then Glenn Greenwald, in your response, you didn't really acknowledge the substance of what Beck had said. You just said, I agree. And then you talked, you, you levied your own criticisms of the Democratic Party, right? So it, it wasn't that you agree. I don't think you actually substantively agreed with Beck in the exchange. You didn't pick up on any of the things that he has specifically talked about. But in effect, listening to it, you end up tacitly condoning all of his criticisms in total. And I think that that is something that is of concern if you go on news sites like Fox News, which I completely support and have no issue with, but if you don't at the same time push back against those aspects of the arguments that are made there that you don't actually agree with, because then you just look like you end up you end up co-signing. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, it's interesting you were talking, I think there's different stuff. We all have different styles, right? That make us be able to have an impact, be able to be heard in this like enormous, almost infinite media ecosystem, right? There's a reason why 
current affairs, has its fans. There's a reason why Bree has a big online following. There's a reason why I've been able to have a large readership and be heard for a long time. And there's no one right way stylistically of doing that. Some people are just more kind of conciliatory in their debating or speaking style, and that's effective for them. And other people are just more kind of combative and aggressive, and 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 that works as well. And a lot of that is just, you know, what our personality traits are. I do think like a lot of this, though, is about what our role is and how we conceive of it. I never really saw myself as being certainly not, uh, you know, kind of a spokesperson for the Democratic Party. But even beyond that, like, I, I never saw myself as being in captivity to a particular ideological dogma. Like, I've never, the only label I've ever really been comfortable with accepting for myself is civil libertarian, because it's kind of a narrow set of views and principles and values that I'm very comfortable accepting. So one of the things that, you know, I do think a lot a lot about is, I'm only interested in doing this work and it is work, right? Like we're here on a Saturday, we're, we're in front of our computers, we're talking about politics, it's going to get promoted online, it's going to generate work, we're going to have to talk about it. I'm only interested in that if it can actually have like an impact on the world, if it can actually make the world a different place than it would be without that. And so the way that, you know, politics can be done, which is like, okay, I'm in this camp, I identify more with liberals or the left than I do with the right. And therefore, I'm going to kind of defend the left, defend liberalism. That is a way of doing politics. But I ultimately find that way to be kind of ineffective. Like, I feel like it doesn't change a lot. It's it's what I probably did more than not for the first five or six or seven years of my work. But that kind of, you know, I'm going to be on the left. I'm going to criticize Democrats. At the end of the day, I'm going to vote Democrat. I just feel like that's not getting anywhere. But I'm with you on that, Glenn. I'm I'm 100% in your camp on that part. But it's the part where you can end up... Sure, go ahead. What I've been doing a lot more of is looking for ways that people who think that they're irreconcilably apart Mm -hmm. and even adversarial can actually recognize similarities that they are taught not to see. And so going into right-wing venues and speaking to them like in a respectful way about their worldview and making them open to the things that I say is a really valuable opportunity for me because I can put in front of them things that they would not otherwise be open to. And so it's, you know, there are times when I go on Fox and someone says something and I will object to the premise of the question. But usually what I'm doing in those cases is looking for ways to say, these are things that even though you see yourself on the right as agreeing with, and even though this person on the left sees themselves on the left, we actually have these similarities in common that we can come together and work towards because that's the only kind of politics at this point that I think can really make a difference and that interests me. And so maybe you're right that I'm not as like confrontational when I'm in right-wing venues by saying, oh, you said this and this is totally false. But I think it's because my mindset is looking for bridges to build and not burn. I don't think if like someone says something and you don't respond, like Nathan has said a bunch of stuff that I haven't responded to just because, you know, I've deprioritized it. Same with him. It means I'm condoning it. I just think you have to have like an objective when you're communicating and that objective will drive the choices you make about what you do address and what you don't. Yeah, I, I think that's really 
really interesting. And I, and I think this it's another one of those is, is we're back to emphasis because Nathan, for, for you in, in, in the current affairs, I remember wrote a piece way back when about how to talk to Trump voters. You know, should we talk, talk to Trump voters? And I, I raised as an example uh, the man whose name I always forget. I'm so sorry. Um, but a black guy who talks to all these Klan members and ends up talking them out of being in the Klan and has like 17 robes in his closet or whatever each, you know, for every man that he's convinced not to be a Klan member anymore. And his approach is not to to go in swinging and disagree with what everybody says immediately and be like, you know, racism is wrong. You're a bigot. He sits down. He has a coke with them. He talks about their kids. And I'm sure things are said that he would object to. He would have every reason and right to object to and maybe even an obligation, some would say, to object to. But he lets them slide because he's trying to establish a relationship. You know, is there do you think that that is a fair approach for Glenn to be taking? And if so, you know, is it maybe would your answer differ whether or not he's having that as a private conversation versus on Fox News with Tucker Carlson in front of a lot of people who might perceive that kind of interaction differently than a private interaction? That guy who uh, goes and meets with Klan members and develops relationships uh, with him, it's kind of an incredible project. But one of the notable things about what he does is that he goes in there with a sense of mission. His mission is to exorcise their racism. Now, I believe strongly that leftists ought to go on Fox News. I've written a, a whole article about the way that leftists have successfully sort of jujitsued uh, Fox News. Katie Halper did a wonderful appearance, Elizabeth Brunig, uh, Adam Gaffney has done excellent work going on Fox and defending left positions. So I, I wouldn't ever criticize Glenn for the act of going on Fox. I would say, however, that I think he may be a little naive about Fox News, because one of the things he has said is that he believes that his getting invited on Fox a lot uh, shows that there's kind of a political realignment. But when I look through all the Fox News headlines, um, it's Glenn Greenwald rips liberals with no scientific training. Glenn Greenwald rips uh, MSNBC's Joy Reid. Glenn Greenwald rips former Intercept colleagues. Glenn Greenwald rips Brian Stelter. And, uh, you know, Fox News, of course they want you on well, for that. I mean, th 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 those are... Th but Nathan, though, just to be clear, those are foxnews.com articles that are like write-ups of my tweets, not they're not my appearances on Fox. But when you go when you go on Fox, have I mean, have you challenged Tucker Carlson over his white nationalism? No, I mean I did when I invite I did right. I did what so I did, they I, did will have I did, you I, did on I did until I, such time. But I I did I did as I, you do something to embarrass them. I have well first of all I have gone on Fox before. I've gone on Laura Ingram's show and you know talked about how Fox News does disseminate its own levels of disinformation similar to what MSNBC and CNN does is the beginning of her show. And she said, if you ever see me doing that, let me know. And I will immediately correct it. A month later, she said some false statements about Omar Mateen's wife, who was currently on trial unjustly for collaborating in the poll shooting. I called her out and said, what you said is false. She went on air that night and, and retracted it. When I had Tucker on Jeremy's podcast, we spent at least half the podcast with me confronting Tucker on all the ways that I think he's being racially inflammatory. But again, you know, it's like, I'll give you an example. Like most of the time when I go on Fox, what am I doing? I'm criticizing the CIA. I'm criticizing the FBI. I'm criticizing the security state or the NSA. I'm also criticizing CNN and MSNBC and the media coverage of, of liberal outlets and their reliance on security state, you know, propaganda in order to do it. 
And I do think that's important to put in front of right-wing audiences, to get right-wing audiences conditioned to hearing that the CIA and the FBI are deceitful institutions who are there to interfere in American political life to subvert the democratic will. Or like on my Substack page, you know, every single time I talk about the dangers of this new war on terror, every time I link it to the abuses and excesses of the first war on terror and what was done to American Muslims. I've been able to interview, you know, Mohamedou Sly, who was the Guantanamo uh, detainee who was imprisoned for 15 years in Guantanamo without due process. I was able to interview Yasser Lawadi, a Muslim French civil liberties activist about the Islamophobia from Emmanuel Macron and put it in front of my like very heterodox audience, including a lot of right wing readers who now are receptive to hearing about that because it's presented in a way that ties it to their worldview in a respectful way. And it is much harder work than if I were to just be talking to a liberal audience applauding everything I was saying but I just think it's more valuable work. And if you want to say like, look, you sometimes err on the side of being too kind of conciliatory. There are certain things that you should challenge that you don't challenge. I'm yeah. look, I'm sure I make those kind of mistakes. It's actually a difficult balancing act to do to like not pretend that you're one thing to, to, to continue to uphold your values, but at the same time, do it in like the lion's den in a way that you're not like the clown who's there to fight with the host, but you're trying to build bridges to that sector of American political life so that they're in general open to what you're saying because they respect and trust the fact that you're telling the truth. It is a hard project, and I don't claim to be perfect with it, but that is my project. I think 90% of that, yeah, I agree with with a lot of that, and I actually don't want this to be kind of the source of our, 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 our disagreement here because I think that, you know, Bernie went on Fox, and I, I think that a lot of the stuff about, you know, there's that, like, awful, like, you're the new darling of right-wing media, and it's like, well, I think you have to critique the substantive positions that people are advancing rather than the venues in which they advance them. I, you know, current affairs, we try and make left arguments to, I like to think, a non-left audience a lot of the time. I think converting people is a, a really, really important part of what you do. You can't ignore those you disagree with. That's, so I think I think we share most of, of what you what you said, and I think my critique probably would be along those lines of, you know, there there are there are areas, especially you know, when I was watching Glenn Beck, it, it was it was it was that you, in fact, you you agreed with him when he said, you know, they're get they're trying to get rid of the filibuster, they're trying to expand the Supreme Court, they're trying to enfranchise Puerto Rico or DC because they're a fascist party and your response was I couldn't agree more and I think that is but the Nathan, point at which you have to say but let me ask you that like do you think that the reason the Democrats are in favor of DC statehood and eliminating the filibuster of the electoral college is because they believe on principle that those are anti-democratic policies or because it just so happens to be that D.C. voters are overwhelmingly Democrat and right now the filibuster is impeding their legislation and getting rid of those things or changing those things would further entrench their power. The, but the, the important point to make there is to say that those policies are democratically necessary. Those are not inherently bad policies. Now, you could say like this for opportunistic reasons by some people. I think some people are genuinely committed to democracy. I don't, I'm not completely cynical. I think that a lot of the effort to expand voting rights is because people believe in voting rights. And I think that when you're confronted with a right winger like Glenn Beck, the important thing is to say, like, no, we have to 
get rid of the filibuster, we have to give DC statehood. That's like that's that's something that we should do because it is the right thing. And we could critique the Democratic Party separate from that instead of saying, well, I, you know, I couldn't agree more with what I think is actually kind of a delusional analysis. Well, what do you think about that, Glenn? What I think is that the Democrats are interested in changing whatever rules they can change with one metric only driving what they want to change, which is how to further entrench Democratic Party politics. I have zero doubt, zero, that if the District of Columbia were filled with Republican voters overwhelmingly, Mitch McConnell would be waving the flag of democracy to demand D.C. statehood and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi would be alluding to the design of the founders about how important it was to keep the capital neutral and not part of any state. They would be on completely opposite sides. So my agreement with Glenn Beck was about the fact that the Democrats are willing to use authoritarian measures, including censorship, including getting into bed with Silicon Valley, including using the FBI and the CIA for political purposes, including changing the longstanding rules of government institutions. But changing the rules isn't authoritarian. That's impact. not authoritarian. No, That's good. It is. It, de- it depends. First of all, it depends what the motive is. And then I will say, you know, this is I, I do think this is a big difference that I have with the with parts of the left as well, which is like, I don't think that pure majoritarianism is a positive political value. I think it's incredibly tyrannical. The whole point of the Bill of Rights is to protect minority rights from being trampled on by majoritarian sentiment so that even if 95% of the population wants to outlaw Islam, the freedom of religion clause in the First Amendment bars them from doing so no matter how big that majority is. Every last part of the Bill of Rights is designed to impede majoritarian sentiment from being unjust. I am not in favor of pure majoritarianism. I don't think that's actually democratic. Oftentimes, I think that becomes incredibly tyrannical. So I think safeguards against majoritarianism are important. But can you separate the argument for or against pure majoritarianism to just this more discreet question about the Senate? Because that's what came up in this context with Glenn Beck. And I think that I think one of the, the most concrete and good arguments that Nathan framed up against you was this question of whether or not you think that the Senate being as unrepresentative as it is, is a good thing. Look, when the union was formed, There was a big fear among a lot of people who were agreeing to it that they were going to end up being ruled by distant rulers who didn't share their values. And the idea was we need protections from, you know, people who live in smaller populated places that they're not going to get overrun by larger, you know, distant parts of the country that have completely different ways of life. And so that design of the Senate was designed to protect that. I do think that, you know, people in Idaho and North Dakota have a legitimate interest. The, the history of the formation of the Senate is is inextricable from the history of America as a slave state where you had these states with enormous populations of people that were still somewhat counted as people of only three fifths that were skewing the power dynamics of the re- relative states. So there was a very express conversation, not about trying to preserve American autonomy from international threat, but about preserving power among land-owning elites against the competitive interests within America. Totally. But, but, but you, but, but Bree, you can, you can say that about, you can say that about, you know, almost every value embedded in the constitution, like the fifth amendment right against the deprivation of 
property without due yes, process. Yes, that's why we have to have CRT. CRT that, for you know, everyone. There's going to be like a social <laughs> uprising by the by the hordes who are going to take away the property of of landowners. That doesn't make due process a corrupted value because in the first instance, the concern was something less than noble. Same with you know freedom of religion, or same with even free speech, like it was true that the founders of the country were elitist and exclusionary in all kinds of ways, but that doesn't contaminate the values themselves. Right. But we can have a conversation, can't we, about the best way to express those values with the hindsight of 200 years and the understanding that there are other checks and balances in effect other than simply the Senate being as disproportionate as it has come to be over the intervening 200 years in particular. I mean, it, it's interesting. You, you you can, you can, but like, you know, you see these same tensions in the, in the European Union right now where, you know, you have this union and so the dominant countries in the EU have always been and continue to be France and Germany that have very different values than a lot of the smaller, more distant and poorer countries like Hungary or Greece. And the reason, a major reason why the United Kingdom withdrew from the from the EU was because people in the northern industrial parts of England didn't want to be ruled any longer by bureaucrats in Brussels. So I don't think that this idea of like, we want to have the ability to control our own lives and not having people in distant places be able to run roughshod over our self-rule and our autonomy. I don't think that's a corrupted value. I think that's a value worth preserving. But, but, that's, but that's the thing, Glenn. I'm trying to dis- divorce the idea that I think we all understand those principles. We all like have them drilled in in some version of some kind of civics class and appreciate as a minority, I certainly do appreciate that majoritarian rule is not necessarily going to be my cup of tea. But can't we have a conversation about how to protect those interests without completely paving over the fact that you have overwhelming majorities of Americans of various stripes whose interests aren't reflected in politics because of largely representation issues. You know, uh, protecting that value, which I think that we would all agree has some merit, shouldn't come at the expense of pretending that there aren't countervailing interests, right? And sometimes those kind of foundational values, those founding father style values, end up just becoming a bully pulpit from which people can straw man and ignore the competing concerns of, frankly, a subjugated majority uh, of Americans who do want things like a $15 minimum wage and universal health care and all of these things that we can't get votes on, in part because of the makeup of the Senate. Yeah. I mean, you know what? Like, first of all, I'm very unconvinced that if the filibuster, let's say the filibuster were eliminated, that all these great things that Democrats say they want to do, but are just tragically stopped from doing because of the filibuster would actually happen. I agree, you know, but at least it would be on front street. At least it would be yeah, obvious. At you, least then we'd have, be having a different kind of argument, right? Instead of this gaslighting. I, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, you still have the requirement that they all have to vote, but you see all these news reports all the time that like people are really happy that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are right. opposed to the filibuster and refusing Senate reform because they don't actually want it either. And the reason they don't want it is because the things that they say to their voters that they favor are things that, on the other hand, their funders won't allow to happen. That, to me, is the real problem. I mean, if I really thought that, like, we were right on the precipice of the Democratic Party ushering in all these wonderful things to improve people's lives and the only thing stopping it was the filibuster, 
I would be a lot more sympathetic to the idea that we should get rid of it. My concern is that and this is why motives matter is that <clears throat> I don't think the fact that something has existed for a long time means it should continue. But I do think that if you have a party like the Democratic Party, or the Republican Party motivated by their own power and you allow them to start dismantling longstanding protections and reconstructing a system with values as the pretext when the real motive is their own power, I think that can bring a lot of unforeseen dangers as well. So in general, I would err on the side of maintaining safeguards and guardrails against abuse of power. I don't want to speak for, for Nathan, but what I got from his article was not that that interest doesn't deserve airing, but that the disproportionality of not also accommodating the interest of those who have legitimate reasons to want to dismantle that system other than the power grab. Like, I'm completely with you, Glenn. I think that Democrats like to posture and pretend that they're doing everything just because they love people and puppies and babies and ice cream and we're just good, good folks. And that's why we support all these things that just happen to you know, benefit Democrats politically. And I think it's malarkey. And I think it's good to keep your eye on that malarkey because those things can flip and pivot and you want to make sure that you're pointed in the right direction for ideological reasons and not for partisan reasons. At the same time, I agree with Nathan that it's the right thing to do to give me in D.C. statehood and, you know, commensurate rights with the rest of the country. It's the right thing to do if Puerto Ricans self-determine it to give them statehood. It's the right thing to do, you know, and that these questions should be able to be discussed and vetted separate and apart from the political issues. And the way that it's framed in the conversation with Glenn Beck and in other contexts can be that it feels like sometimes, Glenn, that you have such a commitment to this idea of making sure everybody has their eye on the political football, that you're not giving arguably enough airing to the substantive argument about whether or not the Senate is undemocratic, whether or not people are being disenfranchised and on and on and on. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I've been talking about it. So if Nathan, you want to drop, jump in, go ahead. Yeah. So one of my big disagreements here is that, and this is when I talk about like pushing what I consider a right wing narrative, is that protecting the rights again of minorities against majorities is often a very important value in governance. But since the founding of the country, that value in the abstract has been used to justify institutions whose actual practical function is to protect what Madison called the minority of the opulent, right? To protect pro the minority in question being protected is property owners. When we talk about the, the Senate, what majority, majoritarian tyranny is it protecting us from? Well, it's protecting us from the majority who want uh, universal health care and a $15 minimum wage. The Supreme Court is protecting us from the majority who would like labor organizing rights, right? They are a counter-majoritarian institution whose supposed function is to ensure that minority rights are protected, but not, but minorities are not abstraction. There are different kinds of minorities. And you have to look at who's being protected. And oftentimes, the, the institutions of American government are designed to protect property owners. And that's the way we need to talk about these institutions, rather than just saying those who critique these institutions clearly don't recognize, as I do, that the majorities can tyrannize over minorities. But there, but there are so many counterexamples. Of course, these instruments have often been used in unjust ways to serve powerful minorities and to prevent majoritarian measures from getting passed that 
would do a lot of good for more people, but they've also been used in exactly the opposite way. Like the reason I'm able to get legally married in the United States is because of anti-majoritarianism and because of that institution that you just correctly described as being anti-majoritarian, the Supreme Court that stepped in and said to states that had laws that were supported by a majority of, of citizens that said that marriage is only between a man and a woman that anti-majoritarian Supreme Court stepped in and said, we don't care how many of you want marriage to be defined that way. We're going to override your majoritarian will to protect the interest of this minority that are being trampled upon. That has happened over and over. We, we all know that it's it's gone both ways. And there's a, plenty of legal, legal scholarship in which folks talk about what happens if the Supreme Court is too far on the leading edge of what culture will allow or dictate. And people who make the argument that Brown v. Board never was really effectuated. You know, we had Brown too, and the edict that integration had to happen with, quote, all deliberate speed. And that because there was still this gap between what the Supreme Court decided and where the country was, you continue to have tensions instead of, you know, a, a quick catching up of the country to the court and kind of simpatico the way that we seem to have with gay marriage. Same thing with abortion, that when there's the, 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 when the Supreme Court leads too much, you end up having a level of political dissonance and tension that puts the underlying right that was won at constant threat. And you see a ratcheting back of those rights over time. Same with affirmative action. And that sometimes the Supreme Court isn't the cheat code that we think it is, right? And so the Supreme Court can seem like it's leading in these ways and establishing rights in these ways, but it's often this yo-yo effect that can't be really understood until history is finally written. I think at the end of the day, a lot of cre credibility, a lot of value is being put in these kind of principles. And I don't always know that the principle or the um, the check and ba checks or balances that are built into the system are really what's controlling here, as opposed to kind of the slower cultural evolution, sometimes very fast cultural evolution that is happening at the same time that the court is operating. By the time of the gay marriage decision, America supported gay marriage 55 to 39. It was not a counter-majoritarian decision. It was the court recognizing. If we'd had a majoritarian system of government, we actually would have gotten gay marriage earlier if you gave Americans what they say they prefer. Well, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, again, if you like discount people's rights to have marriage defined by States, which is how it has always been previously defined. It, you know, if you want to just eliminate the idea that people have any kind of localized self-rule and then everything gets decided on the national level, I don't know what the polling was in 1973 with Roe versus Wade or like with the series of pro-privacy cases leading into the, to Roe versus Wade throughout the 1960s about the right of contraception and the like. But, you know, the reason why abortion has been guaranteed as a constitutional right in the United States for the last 50 years is because the Supreme Court said it doesn't matter how much, you know, if even if majorities want to regulate it, then it doesn't make a difference. You still can't do it. So I think that and I'll, you know, free speech is a really great example where throughout the 50s and 60s, the most important free speech cases were the rights of communists to join the bar association and to become lawyers or to speak at college campuses and not be fired, where clearly overwhelmingly Americans would have viewed communism and communists 
as people who ought to be constrained in what they can do. It was the Supreme Court through anti-majoritarian means that intervened constantly and protected the rights of minorities. Most of the decisions in, in, in the war on terror that ended up vindicating the rights of not just American Muslims, but foreign Muslims, including you know, the decision that said that due process is required at Guantanamo were clearly anti-majoritarian rulings and yet incredibly important for vindicating the rights of minorities. So, you know, I I, I don't think it's nearly as clear cut as people who say, like, just because you say, hey, a majority wants this and anything that in, in, in impedes it is anti-majoritarian and therefore bad. Often the most important protections come from anti-majoritarian right. institutions I, and I'm, principles. Yeah. And then the last point, just the last point up sure. to be was like, I think there's a little irony as well with you saying like, sometimes the principles get in the way of like the real politic. Like if you were to say to me, just go into kind of like a Rawlsian blank slate where you don't know who the voters are in Washington, D.C. and what their political preferences are. Should the nation's capital be this kind of place that is, for, for the reasons that the founders said, ought to be preserved as kind of a, you know, its own district. The same here in, in Brazil, for example, in Brasilia. Brasilia is not a part of any state, although they do have elected representation. It's its own federal district. Or should it have, should it be a state like any other state and treated like any other? On principle, I probably would say, I think it's kind of weird to have hundreds of thousands of people have limited rights that not that the rest of the country has simply by virtue of living in the capital. But that's not the reality of what we have. The, what we have is a party trying to implement D.C. statehood for only one reason, which is to e escalate their power, and one party that opposes it for only one reason, which is to prevent that from happening. And that's what I think often gets distorted is – these debates over things are not... I think you're making my point. Yeah, like, it, I mean, on principle, it's but, easy. I, what I'm saying is that I want to engage with the principle. I think that we. I would agree with you about the political considerations. I'm not saying that politics should lead. I'm saying the opposite. I think that part of what's frustrating is that even though I, I will agree with you on so many instances that it's very important to recognize the political aspect of this because there are people who are going to be distrustful of the principled argument because it happens to align with the political goal in this instance. And I think it will help you get credibility with an audience by acknowledging that. I will acknowledge that immediately. Are there reforms that you favor or that Nathan favors that would undermine liberalism in the Democratic Party as opposed to strengthening it? I'm sure we could sit here and, and brainstorm it. Well, well here, maybe well, this is a, yeah. good, a good time to, to ask this. We're principled opponents of censorship, as we've said. And, you know, even if that, le I don't think Trump should be banned from Facebook, for example. But, you know, even though I like sure. you know, not having to hear him, but I think there's a principled reason to let him speak. Yeah, that, I mean, that's great. I, that is a, a that is a, an example of a principle that you support that undermines your political interest, arguably. But I meant like reforms to the government, like structural reforms to how the American <laughs> government works, how elections well, are I conducted. Glenn, are there any reforms that you advocate that would undermine your interest rather than advance them? No, because it's already so far rigged in favor of Republican minoritarian power. I mean, the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House. No, they don't. It's an illusion. They don't control both houses of Congress because they can't actually pass any legislation. Well, Nathan, see, now I was going to agree with you and now you got to go and say something like that. I mean, I think I'm much more with Glenn on the idea that it's a it's a it's a it's a farce. They, they can do 
plenty. There are, is a great deal that Joe Biden could do with executive orders as he stands there. George Floyd's one year memorial talking about, oh, shucks, I guess I'm just being obstructed. There's, they could have overridden the fucking parliamentarian. The parliamentarian like, that was such a joke. It the was fact a joke. that they didn't is the is the tell. It's the tell of like what is a fact that they don't really want to do these things that they're pretending to do. They had 60 votes in the Senate and control of the House for Obama's first two years. Right. And they got Joe Lieberman and other senators to constantly impede them. Yeah. Like, oh, gosh, if it were oh, if only if it weren't for Joe Lieberman. So I've just been around for too long to buy into those arguments. Right. Nathan, I think that this is I think that wholly like there's not a ton of disagreement. Obviously, you published my kind of anti vote blue, no matter who peace last summer. You know, I, I don't want to overstate the differences here. But I do want to come back to this question of... And, and you were a Jill Stein voter in 2016, and Nathan hired you to write for Current Affairs. <laughs> Proudly. Somehow... I know you don't like remembering that, but I want to just no, remind everyone I, of that. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, and I hope to have Jill Stein on the show soon. <laughs> but there's this really interesting question of what if the facts are facts, but they are against the liberal ideological project. And I think this is, this is another place, Glenn, where you end up getting into into hot water with folks. Um, one example of this was, it wasn't you personally, Glenn, but Lee Fong's reporting. Well, he did a video interview with a black guy, um, I believe in the suburb, suburbs of LA or out just outside in San of San Francisco. Um, LA like, where protests were happening. In San Francisco, sorry. Okay. Who said that he was supportive in some respects for the Black Lives Matter movement, but he thought that some of the protests that resulted in property damage were a problem. I'm paraphrasing. Just to be clear, like he was a protester marching in in the Black Lives Matter march and Lee interviewed 10 people, one of whom was him. He was like a um, a mixed race kid um, who essentially is black. And what he said was, I'm really angry when black people are killed unjustly by white police officers. Right. But I'm also angry, equally angry when my black neighbors are killed by other black people. And it seems like the media only cares and the public only cares when a white police officer kills us, but not when black criminals kill us. And if black lives matter, why don't they care in all cases? That was not Lee's argument. That was this kid who he interviews argument. Right. That was this, ki this kid's argument. So a lot of people got really mad at the substance of what that guy said. And I think there are a lot of really healthy, robust arguments against the black people don't care about black on black crime stuff. Mostly is that the media doesn't pay attention to black protests against violence in black communities. And I think that's really a fair criticism to make of the kid. What was interesting was how much criticism was put on Lee for putting up that in interview as one of a series of interviews of people with a whole bunch of diverse opinions and attributing that opinion to him as though Lee was intentionally trying to participate in the bigger right-wing cultural argument that says we shouldn't have to care about Black Lives Matter because there's also Black-on-Black -black crime. And this is this is some cancelable stuff coming from me now, but this, this, is, this is something that I think is really interesting because it's not that, that what that kid said was true or that I agree with it, but there is, I think, sometimes an overinvestment, more of an investment in making sure that the narrative stays correct, a narrative that I agree with, the politics that I agree with, then allowing divergent views to be aired. And I think it's important for divergent views to be aired so that we know what we're dealing with and we know what arguments to make so we're not caught off guard when Eric Adams wins the, as mayor of New York. 
right? But you see that not just in that Lee Fong instance, you know, it's, it's when we have conversations, you know, the, here we go. Sorry. Here's, here's my last bit of cultural capital, the conversation about detransitioning, right? And to me, the analogy there is whether or not you would want to say air or write articles about someone who had lied about rape. To me, these things are really analogous. Of course, the overwhelming or thrust- Or like invented hate crimes, those kind of right, same thing, right? right? The, the overwhelming thrust of, of, of rape victims never get heard. They never report their crimes and their crimes are never investigated. And obviously the overwhelming political interest is behind correcting that incredible wrong. At the same time, when something does happen, like the Duke lacrosse case, is the obligation to pretend it doesn't, to, you know, to ignore it, so not to feed into a broader cultural stereotype that women lie about sexual assault. Do we, does Lee just bury that video because he doesn't want to feed into a larger cultural stereotype about black people not caring about black and black crime? What is the, oblig- you know, does, does someone like Jesse Single not write about detransitioners because he doesn't want to feed into the larger cultural pressures against trans people who find it very difficult to be heard by their families and communities who want to transition. And Nathan, I'm curious to know what you think about what the obligation of people in the media are to cover or not cover those kinds of issues in order to, you know, protect a political goal that I think that we all probably share. Yeah. This was, uh, Glenn and I had had another fight on Twitter, actually, about uh, 60 minutes. They had a segment on uh, detransitioners and uh, Glad Mm -hmm. put out a statement criticizing it. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I I sort of defended uh, Glad's critique. What do you mean? Oh, I, I, I criticized you criticized Glad. You put out God's a statement criticizing uh, right. sixty minutes, and then I critique right. you critiquing Glad. So, critiquing sixty um, minutes. The right. the critique that they had made essentially was by highlighting all these stories of people who regretted uh, changing their their gender. Sixty minutes was fueling a kind of narrative that like suggests that this is much more common than it is. Now, I am not of the school that suggests don't talk about things that could embarrass it. If I, if I, I have the entire opposite perspective, which is that you need to talk about them because otherwise people are you disagree with are going to bring up these things that you buried and frame them in a way that is very bad. Uh, I feel the same way about the uh, like uh, the lab leak stuff with, uh, with with COVID, where it's like, don't don't pretend this didn't happen or isn't a possibility. Get ahead of it and, and talk about it and, and discuss it. Don't suppress stuff that could have bad I- implications. However, I do I do think that there are important critiques in terms of like being careful to frame things in ways that are not misleading. So one of the reasons a lot of trans people have objected to, for example, Jesse Singles' coverage is because they suggest that he puts too much emphasis on the detransitioners when there is a lot of work still to be done in highlighting the fact that people, most trans people don't get, in fact, get the care and help that they need, right? They are not, in fact, getting too much support and pressure they're getting too little we ran an article from someone in the UK who said that uh, you know the UK was has had this big court case about a woman who says
says she, she was pressured into changing her gender by an NHS clinic. Um, but the writer for us was a, tra a, a trans woman from the UK who said my big problem was that I couldn't get seen by this clinic. And in fact, I had to delay my transition far too long. And that there's a lot of conversation. In fact, now it's fueling bills in all these states designed to roll back care for trans youth. And so my belief is that like things should be presented proportionally, not buried, but that we should be careful about how these things are, are presented in order to not present a misleading picture. I would agree with that. I will say, and I'm certainly no expert in this area, and we should we should have people from various sides of this issue on to discuss it who have had more direct experience than any of us. But I do remember reading Jesse's article when it came out. And I remember it having a lot of the caveats that I talked about earlier building into articles to make sure that people understand that you're coming from a place of good faith. And I remember reading paragraphs and paragraphs of him saying that, of course, the overwhelming issue is that trans kids, trans young people aren't being heard out by their families, aren't being offered the support, mental health, medical or otherwise, that they need in the moment that they're there are a lot of dangers and risks of people self-harming because they're not able to get that support. And of course, that's the overwhelming concern. I remember reading it with a critical eye because it was so controversial at the time and being really surprised that he did build, it seemed to me in my recollection, this was some years ago now, but he, he did build, to spend a lot of time building into the article perspective to make sure that people knew that this was a relatively narrow instance, a narrow outcome of people who transition. And I was actually very surprised by that because of how much controversy there was around the article. So I'm curious, Nathan, do you feel like the issue with, say, Jesse is that he's written about this issue too much and now you're just skeptical of his motives or that there was an actual problem with how things were framed in that initial article? People's criticism of him was, why are those things the caveats rather than the, rather than the focus? Well, Right. Why why do you pick these cases in which of, of, of regret to focus a lot on and then build in all these caveats? I get the sense that he is a person who thinks he is handling these things sensitively, but then when you read a lot of the criticism of his work by trans writers, I think some of it holds up, where they say that he draws too much attention to certain aberrational cases and then loses sight of what the primary issue here actually is. Isn't that the same you know, argument that's being made for Glenn? So go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, no, I was I, I was going to say, Brie, you know, actually, th this this is a, a very familiar argument to me because, well, in 2016, for example, when we were covering the revelations of the WikiLeaks materials and the things that it reflected about Hillary Clinton, we tried very hard to be careful to avoid gossipy items or things that were kind of trivial. But the more important things about the DNC cheating, about Hillary's speeches and what she told Goldman Sachs, what it reflected about her character and the like, we were publishing those. And the argument that we heard was not, this isn't newsworthy or that what you're saying is inaccurate. It's that there's way too much emphasis on the flaws of Hillary Clinton, given how much greater the flaws are of the person against whom she's running. And that by surfacing it in this way, you're creating an imbalanced picture of the, the respective flaws of, of the two candidates. And I think that I actually do think that a lot of these differences come down to the question of journalism. You know, like I have heard in the case of like detransitioners, for example, you can just go online and you can listen to their stories 
And they're they're horrible. You know, they're they're people who got convinced by healthcare workers or online spaces to be misdiagnosed as something that they weren't, which was trans, and in a lot of cases undertake permanent life-altering treatments, whether it's hormonal or even surgical, and then they decide that they wish they hadn't done it. It's just as harrowing to hear, you know, stories of people who have gender dysphoria who can't get treatment because they're afraid of their parents or their culture or because the medical profession is biased against them. And as journalists, I feel like our responsibility should be to tell interesting, meaningful, important stories that are true, provide all that information to the public, and ultimately leave it to like activists and the public to decide where they stand. If, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's certainly no shortage of pro-trans articles in the liberal press. You can pick up the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or the New York Times, any of them, any week, and you're going to find articles about the difficulties that trans people face. I doubt that there were very many people who even knew that there was such a thing as detransitioners before Jesse's article or Katie Herzog's article on The Stranger or the 60 Minutes article. So I think that a lot of this does come from what we expect journalism to be. And a lot of times there is this expectation. Bree's example of what happened to Lee Fong is a perfect example where journalists are are viewed as having done something wrong if they surface information that can impede a political goal that people think is important. It's one of the reasons why people were so angry at me for denying Russiagate because they viewed it as an important weapon to use against Trump and the Republicans. And it looked as though I was serving the right, which was the the kind of framing of, of Nathan's article, serving the right wing. As journalists, we are going to sometimes serve the right wing, even if we're not on the right. We're going to do that if liberals say something that's false and we say so, or they do something corrupt and we report that. So I do think that sometimes a lot of this does come down to what we view as our function in society. This is really interesting, actually, because I think I do actually differ with you on whether journal the job of a journalist is just to to neutrally go like, here are some facts. If I spend my time and all of the things that I happen to write about are stories of like grotesque crimes committed by black people against white people, these are facts. I tell you the facts. What you do with these facts is uh, up to you. I think that is an abdication of the responsibility of journalists to care about how their stories are used. And that's not meaning you should bury the truth. I think that you've got to report on things that are important and true. But I also think that if it's the case that framing things one way is going to give an impression that is then going to lead to a bunch of legislation to try and deal with a problem that does not not exist, but is being blown out of proportion and is being blown out of proportion partially because journalists just tell stories as if all stories are equally representative, that I think a journalist has a job to be political. I think it's a caricature of the argument. I, of course, right, like, go ahead, Bree. Are, are the stories of transitioners important and true in the example that you just gave? Is that something that somebody has a right or is there a community interest in reporting on? Yeah, every every human story is important, right? So then we're now, but now we're in the place. When I brought up the Jesse Single article, 
you said, why is he writing an article about that and caveating it instead of writing the article about people who can't transition? Well, to me, that seems in conflict with what you just said, because if you think it's relevant to report on issues that are true, the stories of detransitioners are true. And I think that your obligation to your point, Nathan, would be to make sure that it's not weaponized in a way that's inappropriate, because I think I'm somewhere between you and Glenn. And to caveat in exactly the way Jesse tried to do now, you should you could say he should have caveated more or that he should write two articles about people who can't transition for every one article that he writes about a detransitioner or some kind of math that seems to even it out. But I think that there is a significant portion of folks who think that there should just be no article ever that acknowledges the existence of detransitioners or the Russiagate stuff or the fact that there are black people with conservative politics or whatever it is. Which which I don't think. Or who commit crime. Because I just want to interject there because I just want my, my position to be clear. Like, I, like Nathan, that extremist view that, that you described, like, hey, just like, this is a fact. Go make of it what you will. Like, hey, I'm like some, I'm just picking, I just happen to be picking, like to decide to report on every story where like a black person kills a white person, but I'm not responsible if that ends up creating the perception that like black people are more violent and white people are victims. No, I do not agree with that at all. That is not my framework whatsoever. I think that when I say that you have to surface the facts to create an accurate impression that requires things like proportionality and making sure that you're not leaving a misleading impression by choosing things that are extremely aberrational and presenting them as common, I remember during the war on terror, it was very common, like right wing bloggers like Charles Johnson would have sort of like Breitbart has a black on black crime section would have like a religion of peace part of his blog. And all he would do is like take little excerpts from like when a Muslim would engage in violence, but never report on when Christians did or Jews did or when Muslims were victims of violence. And that is incredibly deceitful, right? Because you're creating an inaccurate perception of the world because of political activism. But on the other hand, it wouldn't be responsible for a news outlet or a commentator to deny that those things exist or to attack people who are reporting on those things like that Muslims actually do sometimes commit violence in the name of their religion, like other people in the name of their religions do. And I think that's what maybe Bree is getting at. And sometimes it does feel like people want journalism to be about exclusively serving a political agenda. And they get angry if you end up reporting things that undermine that agenda, regardless of whether or not it's true and reportable. And what's funny is that I actually think that, like, I will be very honest about the fact that I started writing because I, I do have a political agenda, right? Like, yeah, me too. I didn't leave my well-paid law job because I just was like, you know, neutral. Like I was galvanized by 2016. I saw these arguments that weren't being made. I wanted to write, right? But my personal belief, and I think this also comes from having a lawyer's background, is that when I see an inconvenient fact, I want to grapple with it head on because I know what's going to come up. You know, opposing counsel is not a dumb dumb. It's going to come up. And the best I can do is try to frame it in the best in, in the best way. So my inclination is to say someone's going to talk about detransitioners. I'd rather it be someone who's going to put it into the proper context and treat people sensitively and not use it as a cudgel against trans people who do want to transition and are very the overwhelming majority who are incredibly happy with their choice. I, you know, I, I want to talk about, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are these complexities of viewpoints that are held among black Americans, because when you don't do that, you end up being surprised like Boo Boo the Fool when South Carolina happens or when Eric Adams happens and everyone on the left just says, oh, black people are dumb and they don't get it instead of actually engaging what's going on with, with communities and wrestling with how you pull a buffalo and figure out how to talk to a community using the language that 
resonates instead of just writing them off because you never actually wrestled with these questions as a broader left community. Sorry, I don't mean to, yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> to get on my, my hobby horse. This. I mean, I spend a lot of time like trying to, I'm trying to write an article right now about how the left should talk about murder, for instance, because I think unless we are able to talk about how you deal with murder in a society, then when the murder rate goes up, it's going to be very, very difficult because there are going to be some people going, look at the murder rate, we need more police. And mm. if we don't have a clear left response that goes, well, here's how you can have meaningful public safety without you know, growing the size of the police state, um, we're going to be unpersuasive. So I think we're probably on the same page for the most part about this. And yet there still seems to be this dissonance when it comes to certain issues that are these really hot button issues. I mean, I know there are going to be a lot of people who are very frustrated that I offered any even very caveated defense of Jesse Single in the context of this episode. And this could be the end. <laughs> well, but, but Brie, but Brie, let me let me let me just like I think I think this is a, a, like a really important issue and just let me like underscore it because this is something I do grapple with a lot is I am somebody who is like I grew up in a working class neighborhood my mom was you know like a single mother she worked at hourly jobs but since I left you know when I was 18 I've been ensconced in elite institutions on the east coast I was you know uh, 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 I went to a prestigious law school I was working at a prestigious law firm I worked as a lawyer in New York and Manhattan and I lived in Rio de Janeiro for the last 15 years I'm aware that I am separated from in terms of my experience the experience of most people, even though, you know, I have things that bring me into contact with with people. We have charities and our shelter that works with the homeless people. It's still not the same when your life experience is nonetheless removed. And I try and be very aware of that. And I had this experience once. Um, I went to I, I've written about this before. I went to dinner with two journalists who are very kind of well-established. They're well-known. They have had a very successful career. They're very protected. And both of them live in kind of liberal enclaves. And each of them have teenage children, one of who had a best friend who was a trans boy. The other was dating a trans boy. And the the journalist whose, whose daughter was dating a trans boy had the, the trans boy had actual top surgery, had a, a mastectomy and poses on Instagram with his shirt off. And they were both saying, I really wonder whether kids at the age of 15, 16, 17 are emotionally equipped to make these kind of choices that are so permanent, whether it's hormones or whatever. And we had a really interesting conversation about it that, you know, I talked about how I knew I was gay when I was 11. So why is it so unclear that or hard to believe that somebody might know that they're trans when they're 14? Or is that something different? Like it was a very honest, like interesting discussion. And then when I left, I realized that there would never, ever be a moment where those two, despite how protected and well-established they are, would ever express those questions or uncertainties because the climate in which they work, which is liberal, the liberal sector of journalism, would never permit it. They would be subject to all kinds of accusations. And I think that if you go and you know, look at polling data, so often the conversations that we're allowed to have on the elite liberal level as journalists or activists or whatever have rules that prescribe them that are completely different than the conversations that other people are having, which is why, you know, that video that Lee uploaded was so shocking to a lot of people, even though 
polling shows that that's a view that a lot of people share, including in African-American neighborhoods who want more policing and not less, which is why you can't find anyone on Twitter who likes Eric Adams, and yet Eric Adams won fairly easily. And so I do grapple with that a lot, that like, are we having these very insulated conversations and are these rules that we all live under, this kind of regime of what we are and aren't allowed to say, leading to this greater and greater cleavage between ourselves, someone who went to Harvard, someone who went to Yale, someone who has had my life and still does, and the vast majority of the rest of the population. And I think there's lots of indicia that that cleavage is growing in a way that's really harmful and disturbing. This question of who has kind of won the culture wars and, you know, what we are are allowed or not allowed to say in quotation marks. I mean, I feel like this is another big division point where I think that some on the left, Nathan, you might be one of these, although I don't want to put words in your mouth, kind of push back against the idea that there's any sort of, for lack of a better word, cancel culture. Um, they push back against the idea that the left has any really real power. And, I, and I've heard you make this argument, Nathan, that obviously the overwhelming force of power is behind the right, or at least aligned behind corporate interests that tend to align with the right disproportionately, although certainly equal party access there. And that it can feel, again, disproportionate to talk about the left's culture power when that's such a drop in the bucket of broader power. And I think that, that there's some legitimate legitimacy to that at the same time that it's also true that there are spaces, even if they're limited and ultimately less powerful, in which there are very strict cultural rules that can be policed in a way that can feel very powerful if you step aside them. And you can say it doesn't matter that Glenn can go and do a sub stack and everybody can go about their business and you're not actually really canceled. And I think that's that's fair. But whatever you want to call it, there certainly is a pressure not to discuss certain things. And maybe you think it's good that nobody should discuss Jesse Single and that's a, a net benefit for everyone. But if I'm going to be really honest, there have been moments on this show where, you know, we have had conversations that were supportive, light, fun conversations that like touched upon an issue that we knew was going to be polarizing, like trans issues that we just decided to cut because it wasn't worth it. And this is two people who support every right in the world for trans people who want them to have universal health care so that they can transition without cost, who want to respect pronouns and for everyone to live their best life but who feel like there's so much heat but what do you think's <laughs> that it's not even to you, worth Bernie? opening the door. I think that this conversation that we just had is going to be extremely polarizing. You don't think it's going to? But what do you think the consequences for you are? I think I'm going to be called, I could conceivably be called a transphobe for the rest of my life on the internet. And you can see that's not a big consequence and I shouldn't care. But I think that that's also not really fair. <laughs> I mean, but what you're talking about is people criticizing you. Yes, I, I no, I'm but fairly. Nathan, but let me just, but 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 the, we're not representative. Like, no one can fire Bree. Nobody can fire me. Nobody can fire Nathan. Most people don't have that luxury. So, if Bree's reputation is torn to shreds because of something she says, she'll still have her podcast. She'll still be fine. I mean, sort but the of. Signal also, that like sends to like, yeah. Yeah, like imagine like you're a reporter at Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or Vice or the New York Times or wherever and you see jobs disappearing and you know you work in an industry where it's extremely difficult to keep your job, let alone to get a new one if you get fired. You're going to look at that and you're going to know that there's a big price to pay 
for questioning liberal pieties at all. I can't tell you how many times during Russiagate I had journalists from like CNN or the Washington Post or NBC DM me or email me and say, I just want to thank you for what you're doing. I wish I could do it, but I know that I can't. So the fact that there are some people like us who are insulated because we have independent platforms that will just get called names and have reputational (laughs) arms, it's a way of sending a signal to people who are much more vulnerable that, okay, maybe they end up on their feet, but you won't. It's easy to dismiss that, but if you're not somebody at risk of it, but I think that you know, it's it's a big problem for a lot of people. The point that I usually make on this is that for exactly the reasons that you stated kind of earlier, which is that these places with discursive rules that are kind of strict are a very narrow segment of society and divorced from the what the majority out there thinks, right? And they're sort of detached. Focusing on the way those rules in those spaces occur uh, misses the fact that for the most part, we are still in a world in which bigotry isn't, in fact, punished. And that actually, that in, in, from, in most of the world, for instance, it is not the parent who worries about their child's gender transition being too fast and they can't say it who is the person who can't speak, but it is the child who can't tell the truth about their gender identity to their parents because they'll be disowned or hurt. And that those, I mean, I read uh, Abigail Schreier's book and I I, I reviewed it, Irreversible Damage, uh, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And one of the very obvious things about it is that she gives a lot of attention to the parents who are worried about their children's gender transitions, and the children themselves are totally absent from the book. And those are the people that I, most of my concern is with, because I actually think that generally, if your speech is in support of conventional wisdom, which still tends towards prejudice and still tends towards reactionaryism, the outside of certain spaces where the left has, in fact, managed to perhaps overcorrect slightly, most of the time people are pretty fine. And all of these right-wing speakers have best-selling books, usually, you know, uh, uh, like... But, but Nathan, we're not talking about right-wings. We're, we're literally just in this context talking about me, me and what may or may not happen, what the response might be to me on this podcast. And your response is to say that it's it's it would be fine hypothetically if I known for the tra- as a transphobe for the rest of my life for the, some tepid statements about whether or not one article written by Jesse Single five years ago was accurately criticized. You know, like that that's what we're talking about here. And and to the to just a brief point of correction, his article, whatever you might say about it, and I'm overly happy to hear all the substantive critiques from any trans you know, authority who wants to come and talk on here. I've read a lot of them because I'm genuinely wanting wanting to understand. I have been wanting to know for years. But his focus in that article was on kids. There were interviews with kids or people who had transitioned young, right? That wasn't a story about the parents. Should no one write about that? And I have no point if I said nobody should write about it. Why, why can't we acknowledge that there are areas that are sensitive for good reason, right? They're, sen- they're, they're sensitive areas because there has been so much one-sidedness and so much difficulty placed on the marginalized party, on trans kids, on vic- Black victims of gun violence and police violence, on the Hillary Russia, all of that. 
you know, that it's so one-sided that we are reluctant to raise our hand and say, draw any attention to what might be a little a legitimate concern on the other side. Oh, Trump is so bad. Okay, I, I get it. But can't we have both things? Like, why is there this binary where it is presumed that acknowledging that someone somewhere might have regretted a decision can't be put in the proper context that doesn't isn't weaponized against people who want to transition. And I think that your critique of Glenn, I think in some respects, is, is is strongest here, where you say there are times when Glenn doesn't caveat enough. There's times when it's not clear when, where Glenn's politics actually lie because he doesn't push back against Glenn Beck or Tucker Carlson in the way that he should. And we can have a conversation about where that line is and what the cost benefit is of Glenn not pushing back in order to get a bigger, broader message across or when, and as a matter of principles and ethics, he needs to draw a line more clearly. I think that that's, that's a legitimate place of disagreement. But where I can't get down with you is this idea that, and, and I, I want you to try to maybe articulate what you're saying here. You know, when is it that someone can write the piece about the controversial thing without being called a transphobe or some other label that I think that probably doesn't fit? And why is it that it's you, you ha seemingly have a blasé attitude about the idea that someone, let's say, in my position right now might get stuck with that label? Why is that just like, oh, like, OK? I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying play the, the biggest uh, the world's tiniest violin for me. Hardly. I'm not the victim in the situation, obviously. And who knows what the response will even be. But like a basic acknowledgement, like, yeah, that would that would suck. <laughs> It, it's it's odd to me. Yeah. So one of the frustrations that I, I've read in pieces by trans writers about the way the detransition conversation happens is yeah. the suggestion that, oh, you don't want us to ever mention that detransition happens. You want to bury it. And what writers say is, well, no, in fact, we discuss detransition. It's something that has, in fact, been discussed. You just don't read our writings on the topics. And instead... In fact, a lot of my writing on social social justice issues, one of the things that I see as a common frustration is people being called censorious and, you know, woke authoritarians without necessarily being listened to and having their critiques taken seriously. I am of the belief that there is some overreaction, some kind of willingness to, to call names casually and that I don't like it when, you know, uh, cruelty is exercised on the internet. I'm very, very opposed to it. But that also, like, if people do handle issues genuinely sensitively and they research and they care and they listen and they show their pieces to the people affected and go, do you think this comes across a little badly? Is there some way I can improve this? Um, then the controversy tends to die down a lot of people who get like really attacked on the internet are people who come at it with an extremely confident approach, which is like, I'm voicing the un-PC opinions that nobody wants to hear and you all just want to call me names and fuck you, right? And to me, that exacerbates the problem. Is that how you feel Jesse's behaved? I do kind of feel that way, yeah. He has a, he has a kind of can, like... Can I interject here? Because uh, first of all, I think it's I think it's a super interesting conversation, the whole thing about like, hey, as long as you're like still standing and you're not like in prison and you're not starving to death in a gutter, like what do you really have to complain about just because people criticize you? Like remember what happened with Lee Fong, which was one of his colleagues called him a racist in response to that video. And I would say that hundreds of major media figures chimed in 
in defense of that accusation against him, supporting the idea that he's actually a white supremacist or a racist in all sorts of ways, retweeting that, liking it. I think it got 8,000 retweets, 35,000 likes, but major, major voices in the profession in which he works manifested in defense of that accusation against him. Now, he still had a job after that. He was still allowed to like tweet, but the reputational injury is extremely important. We're all social and political animals. And when you get widely branded as a racist in an unfair way, I think we should not be so dismissive of that. That's the one thing. The other thing is, I think there's this odd tendency on the part of all of us. And I put myself in this. I think it's like a human nature. I think it's part of our tribalism that we always like to think that it's always the other side that has all the power and we have almost none. So in like Nathan's telling the idea that, you know, like a pro trans viewpoint is like so rarely expressed that it's like this kind of forbidden minority idea. The reality is, is that pretty much like every major powerful institution routinely expresses defense of trans rights. Like Joe Biden, you know, just will tweet like trans, trans women are women or whatever. The CIA, the FBI, all those like controversies that people have talked about where they're embracing these kind of you know, liberal cultural war agendas, which doesn't mean those causes are wrong because the CIA is exploiting them. But the fact that like major corporations like Citibank will tweet or put on their Instagram the trans flag signifies where the real power lies within these cultural war debates. Well, Glenn, I, I'm again, I'm somewhere between you guys. Like, I, I wouldn't over. Date that, right? Because there's all kinds of, and Nathan, you made this point in your article, I think, very well. There are people who will appropriate certain imagery and kind of superficially support various causes. But why are they doing that? Why does that work? Why does it work for Citibank or the CIA I, to appropriate I agree with you, Glenn, it? That they're, they're capitalizing on certain cultural trends that indicate that maybe some cultural victories have been won and the Overton windows have shifted, et cetera. But it's a very superficial kind of commitment, as we can see when Joe Biden immediately starts his, you know, second crime bill r ratcheting up, <laughs> as he's doing right now, right after saying that he wouldn't have won without black people. And who knows what may or may not happen with respect, with respect to the LGBT community. He certainly doesn't support Medicare for all, which would have been a real boon for so many folks who can't afford gender reaffirming surgery, gender affirming surgery and all of that kind of thing. Right. But like he reversed the ban on like trans people in the military, like I think in the first week. So it's not all just empty gestures. Sure. But to me, the th I, I follow I follow capital. And to me, people are going to be willing to do all kinds of things right up to the line of when it actually affects capital, the, the donor class, the, the, the special interest. And this is what I was saying a little bit to David Sirota in last week's episode. He was saying, well, Republicans, capital doesn't really care about voting rights. And I'm like, well, no, if the voting rights shift the balance of power such that they're not able to get their agenda across as easily, I think they care. It is one step removed from some of the more specific bills. But, you know, so, so I agree with that. But, but Glenn, I, where I will agree with you is that I would say that there are just certain spaces you know, every space isn't equal. We're not, there's the entire globe where I would say that trans rights are very much not protected. There's America right. where it's a right, little bit sure. better. There's places like New York and Massachusetts and San Francisco where it's a lot better. And it differs by household sure. by household. And a different, we're in a lefty community. We're in a lefty political community. We're on Twitter, which skews left. You know, all of these things mean that there can be spaces in which there is a, quite a bit of cultural hegemonic power on the left. 
And there are spaces where they're not. And this whole conversation gets conflated into like, who has power? Oh, you're ignoring the fact that that's a right wing government and Trump almost did an insurrection and all this. Well, no, like, obviously, in some places, it's an enormous uphill battle for trans issues and other kinds of marginalized groups. But I think we can also acknowledge that most of us live in spaces where even having the kind of conversation we've had today is very thorny. I will concede that the left is winning the retweet wars. But I measure <laughs> trans rights by, for example, survey the surveys that are done of trans people in America about harassment, about housing discrimination, about workplace discrimination. I measure the success of Black Lives Matter by, for example, the wealth gap, by uh, housing discrimination. But again, I don't measure the success of the labor movement by whether Amazon is tweeting like, we're the real Bernie Sanders, we love our workers, but what it actually looks in a, like in an Amazon fulfillment center. But Nathan, we're not talking about the success of those movements. We're, this, con- this is a conversation about whether or not there are any power imbalances that make it more or less difficult to have certain kinds of conversations as journalists and public commentators. I don't think any of us would argue that trans rights have been won or Black Lives Matter is booming and successful or anything of the sort or, or, you know, labor rights are on the upswing or anything of the sort based on what's going on on the Internet. One of my problems is that when we talk about power, a lot of it is like discursive power and then out in the world right? It's still a case that the United States is a country ruled by a form of brutal libertarian capitalism where there are still massive uh, racial uh, disparities across nearly every measure of health, housing, etc. And that, like, I want to reorient our conversation. And I think when we say, oh, well, the left is winning the the culture war, right? Because there's a lot of criticism of police, in the discourse, but then as a as a practical, real matter, police budgets just go up and up and up every year. Uh, we are getting kind of a false impression of who's really winning in the world of actual material power. But is anyone here arguing that the left is winning the cultural war on on policing? Well, I, actually, there's, there's a quote I used from Glenn in an article where he says, like, you know, pretty much all of the mainstream media is completely on the left on policing. And I think that's wrong because I hear cr- crime wave, crime wave, crime wave. And I don't actually think we have succeeded in getting a robust conversation about the reality of American policing in prisons. I, you know, I, I mean, the culture war is too broad. I mean, I think the left has clearly won parts of the culture war. You know, I was I, I did a kind of like speech thing last night for a bunch of high school students who are on the debate team in parts of South Florida where I grew up. And I was recounting for them because it just brought back a lot of memories, like where they lived was where I grew up. And I was explaining to them how the idea when I was their age, that one day, like two men or two women would be able to be married legally anywhere, let alone in all 50 states, or that like 16 year olds could go to their high school prom with a date of the same sex was completely unthinkable. Like it wasn't even on anybody's radar that any of that would happen. And yet these changes happened so radically that, you know, I think it's very hard to deny that there has been a lot of serious progress made by the left. And it's part of what I was saying earlier that I think there's this tendency to always want to say, we're losing, we have no power. We're on the losing side of every real battle. Real power is against us. And I don't know, I think sometimes that can be very dispiriting and it can also be very inaccurate. 
I think the reason why, you know, Citibank and Joe Biden and the CIA wave the trans flag is because they know that there's enough of the population now that wants to see that cause supported. Whereas 10 years ago, that never would have happened. That's meaningful progress. That's victory in the culture war from the perspective of the left. Things like policing, I don't really see as part of the culture war. That's like, you know, the the reason why the U.S. is paramilitarized is to protect capital, right? Like it's to keep the population at bay. It's to make sure they don't get too disruptive. It's to make sure they stay in their place. It's to make sure that capitalism is protected. I think it's a lot more than about the culture war. So I wouldn't say the left is winning on police issues, for example, but on other issues like gender, feminism, racial diversity in the workplace, LGBT rights. I absolutely think the left is winning. I absolutely think that power resides much more on the left wing view on those issues than they do on those who are opposed. But Glenn, when you say the vast majority of digital media and mainstream media is 100% on the side of the left on cultural issues like crime policy, how is that not crime as a cultural issue? First of all, that was a me- that's a media observation. And I mean, I don't think there's any, I can't believe there can be any doubt that after George Floyd, that anybody would deny that the discourse changed radically when it came to race and policing. But, but how do you feel I about mean, it now, Glenn? Newsrooms. I mean, now months later. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been, a, there's, been, there's been, yeah, there's, I agree. There's been a little bit of a retreat, but I don't think the retreat is so much a media retreat. I don't think you find a lot of law and order mm. or, <laughs> you know, maybe we went too far in the George Floyd thing on the op-ed pages of like the New York Times and the Washington Post. I think voters, I think voters are saying we think crime is getting too out of control and we want more policing in order to protect it. I think that that's what New York voters just said when they voted for Eric Adams. I I would disagree with you there, Glenn. I I think that just like Joe Biden ended the Me Too movement, I think that he ended a lot of aspects of the energy around the George Floyd uprising because it was framed as a trade-off between his ability to win. I don't think this was true, mind you, but it's consistently trade framed as a trade-off between Democrats being able to win and backing these social justice interests. And once that became clear, the entire pundit class that I think, including a lot of Black pundits who were suddenly much more progressive than they are in their everyday life when it came to criminal justice issues, walked it back. And the same yeah, way you see I, that, so, so, Dwayne let me Reed... Just, Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, supporting the military. Let me just right. distinguish between policing, which it is true. Like there was an article just I quoted from the New York Times three days ago saying that like the policy posture of Democrats on policing is very clear. More funding for the police, not just Eric Adams, but Joe Biden wants to put more funding for the police. Nancy Pelosi demanded $2 billion in additional spending for the Capitol Police in the name of protecting the Capitol, and that also passed just with Democratic support. So I think there's the police narrative about crime, but then I still think there's a lot of awareness, positive awareness, around the issue of racial disparities in policing and criminal justice than there was certainly a year ago. I think the the media discourse— has evolved so that there's a lot more discussion of racism embedded in policing than there was prior to George Floyd. I think there has been progress in that regard. I think that's true. But Glenn, do you see how that is a much more nuanced nuanced statement than the one that Nathan read out and how framing it the way that you did in the statement that Nathan read out does seem to misrepresent the power 
imbalance, especially if you do so in the context of like a Fox News program and how that might be dangerous? I don't know what the context of that statement was, nor do I know the date, but I think it's absolutely true that like for at least six months after the George Floyd murder, the discourse surrounding police, policing and crime and race changed radically to the point where people were fired from the New York Times for wanting to publish an op-ed by a Republican senator advocating the deployment of the military to quell riots, which had been something that had been done a long time. So I don't know if that was a tweet that allows a lot less nuance, right? Like, which is why our discussion that we're having now is different than the argument we might have about the very same things if we conducted it on Twitter. I don't know what the time frame of that quote was, but I do absolutely believe that there was a media consensus where it was pretty much obligatory in non-right-wing media spaces to have a highly orthodox and homogenized view on policing and race in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. I don't think you can deny that there have been fundamental radical changes in how those conversations take place. What do you think about that, Nathan? Well, the context was that it, it was a month ago because on your Outside Voices section, you published a cr article critical of Larry Krasner that spread essentially misinformation that made unproven claims that reform prosecutors were causing, as you put it, costs, real costs to working people. And people were very critical of this. And, and your perspective, your pushback was that liberal and progressive outlets were burying the truth about the costs of reform prosecutors, which is why it was necessary to publish this counter argument. That I absolutely agree with. First of all, this is a freelance contribution, and I purposely published it because I've been a longtime advocate for the reform prosecutorial movement in the United States. But in these liberal cities, there has arisen a lot of doubts about whether this kind of reform is actually spawning crime. And what I said was, because you would never have, like for The Intercept, for example, in a million years, would never, ever publish, no matter how experienced the guy is, as this reporter is covering crime in Philadelphia, an anti-Larry Krasner article questioning what a lot of people think. And I, the next day, published a rebuttal to that article by Ben Spielberg, who defended Larry Krasner and dissected a lot of the arguments. So I aired both sides of the debate. And my argument was exactly that, Nathan, that in liberal media circles, people never are exposed to what is a pervasive view against the reform argument that by allowing recidivist criminals out of jail all the time that you increase the crime rate and make life more dangerous for working class people. That is absolutely a view that I believe should be aired. It doesn't mean I believe that view myself. And the, what I was saying was the reason why I thought that this should be aired is because that's not that view is not a place that can be aired in most non-right-wing outlets. Find a New York Times article well, because or a Huffington Post. It's not, it, there's a huge number it's of not, people. Yes, what, do you mean, it's, what do you mean it's false? It's You can't say that it's false. I, of course there are costs to reformist criminal no. justice policies. Even reformist prosecutors admit that sometimes they're going to allow out of jail people who are actually violent criminals who will but end up committing crimes. the arguments that were being made were that the increase in crime rate is least to reform prosecutors when it's been uniform regardless of whether people have a reformed prosecutor. So it's just misinformation. There are identifiable cases of people who absent reform prosecutors would have been in prison, who were out of prison because of reform policies, who ended up committing horrific crimes. Those are facts. And so acknowledging that there's a cost 
to reformist prosecutorial policies is an important part of the debate, just like acknowledging the existence of detransitioners is an important part of the trans debate. So I, I think that the issue is whether or not it's a, it's a context issue again. So I think Nathan's point is that the argument is being presented as though there's a relationship between reform prosecutors and increased rates of crime, which does not exist. Crime is increasing in cities not as much as it's being represented in some instances, but uniformly, regardless of whether that they have a reform prosecutor. And of course, anytime anybody gets out of jail, sometimes people are recidivist. And that is a thing that happens. But it doesn't mean that we need to Willie Horton um, the criminal justice system and just say we're going to lock people up forever. And I think that you're right, Glenn, that we should engage right, but, but, with. But, but, no, but, but, but it also doesn't mean that you should suppress debates that are happening in the real world. There are raging sure, debates Glenn, about whether you, reformist you, prosecutors are there. So you publish somebody who has one side of the view, and then you allow somebody who has the opposite side, and you present both sides to the Glenn, to the readers. That's what no, journalism that's, is. That's not. No, that's not what journalism you, is. That is. Journalism is the truth. Not every side is yeah. equal. But what's well, what true? you could do, Glenn, is get Ben Spielberg. If, if that was a point of view that you thought people needed to know about, that people are making this argument against progressive prosecutors, you could say, OK, Ben Spielberg or whoever else, go out and, and take on that argument, engage with it, report on the fact that some people believe this. But in fact, here's the fact of the matter. And that's how you get people exposed to stuff. I wouldn't support someone writing an article that says transition shouldn't happen because some people detransition. So you should absolutely not acknowledge that your kid is trans until they're a 25 year old adult and out of the house. I wouldn't support that, but I might. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't accept the premise of this discussion. Like, do you guys think that it was right that the op-ed editor of the New York times was fired for publishing the Tom Cotton op-ed advocating the deployment of the military onto the streets to quell the unrest on the Black Lives Matter movement. Should that op-ed have been aired, given that polls showed 50% of the people believed it? Or should the New York Times just have assigned somebody to say, some people say this, but here's why it's wrong? I don't think it should have been published because I think a publisher's responsibility is not just to publish everything that people believe, but to publish things that you believe to be correct. Right. But there's like there's facts and there are opinions. And like whether the military should be deployed onto the streets is an opinion. Like whether that's the right thing to do or not is a debate that people were having. And whether there was an election and there was like a, a candidate who was arguing that that reform prosecutorial movement was causing increase in crime. There's a, a recall movement in San Francisco now against Chasey Bodine based on the same argument. There's a debate happening in the world, whether you air it or not. Glenn, so, where would you draw the line? What Do you think that any debate, any any opinion, if I'm a sitting senator, because this was the argument that was made about Tom Cotton, that if you're if you're you're a, if you're a congressperson, that you're important enough. And if you're, the view that you're expressing is widely spread enough that it should be received, it should be promoted by uh, the New York Times. Now, it should be aired. It should be aired. Right. But Tom Cotton could publish in any number of places, including conservative outlets, including, I'm sure, on his own congressional website. And people would pick it up and talk about it. He could go on Fox News or other TV programs and talk about it. So it, this isn't a question of whether or not he can be heard or, or that the New York Times is the only place where he could possibly have his opinion aired. And to your own argument, Glenn, it's an argument that's it's a debate that's being, ha being had everywhere. Right. This isn't something that's being censored. So if the question is, should the New York Times as right, audience- Right. And I, and, I, and I agree. My argument in favor of why 
I would publish a Tom Cotton op-ed arguing that something that 50% of the people supported, according to polls, was precisely because I would assume that my readership had not been exposed to that argument because the television shows that they watch and the, the newspapers that they read doesn't allow them to hear that. And I think they should hear that side of the, the debate. Well, if your case, if the case that you're making, Glenn, is that you think a specific audience that doesn't isn't aware of this argument happening needs to be made aware of the argument, then I would say write an article about the argument. Don't necessarily give someone free reign, give, give someone a platform to make incorrect statements, factually incorrect statements that aren't balanced in any way. Right. Like this, this is this is you can say what you want about Jesse Single. And I'm sure there's a lot of legitimate criticisms that people much smarter and knowledgeable than me could make. But there's a difference between someone who would say make a case against detransitioners and someone who's like, here are the arguments. Here are arguments from some people who've detransitioned who feel like they haven't been heard. But Bree, it's ironic because the argument that you're making against the publication of Tom Cotton's op-ed or against the publication of the op-ed I published critiquing reformist prosecutorial policies and then following it up the next day by somebody who said those are inaccurate is exactly the same argument that's being made in opposition to Jesse Signal's singles detransitioner article, is. which is which is that it is there. Of course, there are absolutely people who say that he misled and deceived and made statements that were not factually supported. It wasn't just that he highlighted something yeah, that was... I've, I've read those critiques, though, Glenn. I, I, I've been following this issue. I, it's been interesting to me for years now. And I have read every critique I could get my hand on. I was once on a podcast, on one of those slate podcasts, with a trans writer who had written about Jesse Single. And we went back and forth a little bit. And when I pressed them on their concerns... They didn't come up like they were unable to be specific in the way that I think a lot of folks aren't when it comes to him. And you you get a lot of this, you know, Jesse Single is harassing me because he asked me if I wanted to weigh in and have a conversation. You know, there's a lot of like weird stuff that happens with him online and I can't really get into that. Yeah. yeah but there's yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, bad yeah. faith stuff that goes on. And, and there's some good faith criticism, I'm sure, too. But it all becomes out in the wash because there's so much craziness. But I, I think that there's a really notable difference, Glenn, between an article which weighs arguments and concerns and balances them. You can say that Jesse didn't do them accurately. You can say that he didn't weight things accurately. You could say that he didn't caveat sufficiently. You can say that he writes too many articles about detransitioners and at a certain point it gets suspicious. I think all of that is fair. But in the context of this one article that I do remember closely reading at the time, he was weighting the pros and cons and giving air, air and voice to both arguments and pushing back. You you think that, but not but not but that's not how debates work. Right, but like, Tom Cotton wasn't even pertaining like, to do that. One Glenn. of the things one of the things I one of the things I very much set out like set out to do and said from the beginning when I created that that kind of outsider voice, outside voices section was I did want to air debate so that my readers could hear both sides. I'm not, you know, I don't accept this like absolutist definitive claim from the two of you who do support reform prosecutors that it's so definitively clear that there's no correlation whatsoever between reform prosecutors and an increase in crime because intuitively it seems like well, it would be true. What's your evidence, Glenn? Intuitively doesn't get us to, any, but I'm anywhere. Not in, I'm, no, I'm, what's I'm, the evidence? But Bree, I'm not, I'm not claiming that it is true or not true, which is why I didn't write an argument one way or the other. I gave my form over to two people who have devoted themselves to the study of this issue and who came down on very different sides so that those two could have a debate for the benefit of my readers 
as elections were coming up where the question was, should reform prosecutors continue to be installed in office or, or removed? So the idea that you cannot air debates no, Glenn- between two people, if like one of them in the in the view of one side is making an accurate, I promise you, Bree, there are people who think that Ben Spiegel. But I just want him to be good. Who think Ben Spiegel made false claims. I, I want. What's that? Did, t- tell me this because I was paywalled, so I, I didn't read it. But did the person who was making the anti the anti reform prosecutor case point to facts that would militate toward? progressive prosecutors being correlated with a rise in crime. Did he actually factually support his argument? Was it a good, credible argument? He's a a longtime reporter in Philadelphia. And what he did was he highlighted numerous cases where very horrific crimes were committed because of changes to prosecutorial policies that allowed those people out of jail who absent those changes would have been in jail. And my argument was, these are costs. There are costs to every policy change, including prosecutorial reform. And those costs should be aired. Like people should know about those costs. And then maybe at the end of the day, you say, I think these costs are way too minimal and that the cost of over-incarceration outweighs them greatly. So I'm still in favor of reform prosecutors, but I'm not going to propagandize and like shut off the side of the argument that says here are costs. The costs were it's very free. It's so similar to what you're doing. No, no, but okay, I'm with you, Glenn. To defend I, Jesse I, I, I'm with you, Glenn. If if it is true that his research and was fact based, then I don't have a problem with airing those facts. My understanding, and Nathan, I want you to jump in here. My understanding was that the problem was he was not credible in the argument that he was making because the facts that he was the, the argument he was making wasn't supported by empirical evidence that there was any relationship between progressive prosecutors and a rise in crime. Nathan? The headline of the article is Mounting Violence Casts a Doubt Over the Project of Progressive Reform Prosecutors. And so the argument is that the increase in violence should cause us to doubt the project of progressive prosecutors. And it doesn't deal with the fact. No, no, no. The argument is is that doubts are arising about whether or not this is a valid movement because of the rising crime. That is a true statement. But he believes that. But he believes that you should Correct. have and, those and doubts. He, and he, and exactly. So, and he was there yeah, to make so that case. So it's an case. argument that you should doubt the project of progressive prosecutors Correct. by Correct. this man. Correct. Right? I am a publisher. You and a publisher. We, we are a publisher. We take different approaches to this. I wouldn't publish an article that said global warming isn't happening. Headline. Or many, you know, here are a bunch of reasons to doubt global warming. And then tomorrow I'll give you the counter argument. Because I don't think, I think the role of a, a journalist is in some sense to be an arbiter of You're an the truth, you right? Edit. To check to <laughs> check stuff, to be incredibly rigorous and to, and to make sure that a writer, if they claim that mounting violence, they're going to lead readers to believe. Obviously, I agree with that. To- I agree with that totally. You don't have the right to publish false claims under the guise of opinion. That we're, That's not in dispute. The, the question is, it, was this a demonstrably false article? And I just don't, I didn't, I don't even think Ben made a compelling case that it was. Why did you not ask him to deal with the fact that the rise in violence has been uniform? Because he was he was ma- he was making specific cases and saying it was true these cases of people being horrifically victimized by violence would not have been on the streets but would have been in prison had it not been for Larry Krasner's reforms. Just like there are long list of cases in San Francisco, so even if it doesn't meaningfully increase the crime rate, even if it's like 30 people or 20 people who were like horrifically murdered or raped 
because of prosecutorial reform, that is a cost to those policies that that should be included in the debate. But you know why it's misleading to point to those costs, which is that part of the reason why reformist prosecutors uh, go about the approach that they do is to reduce the amount of violence. Because even if there are cases in which a, an, an anecdotal and isolated act of violence occurs that would not have occurred, there may be other cases in which there are acts of violence that do not have occurred that would have occurred because you find a way to get someone in a diversionary program. That's that's right. correct. Just like there may be a few detransitioners, but in the majority of cases, you're actually helping people's mental and physical health by allowing easy access to trans hormonal therapies and surgeries. So therefore, why focus on those detransition right. well, cases? I, I, and I would I would agree. Like the, my my feeling about Jesse in this whole area is that the the analogy I, I keep coming back to the analogy about rape you know, rape allegations, because if someone wrote a one-off story on someone who had lied about rape or someone who had been falsely accused of rape, I'd be like, okay, that was interesting. Moving on. If someone devoted their whole life to writing stories about men who had been wrongly accused, then I would start to think that this is an ideological project and I would be suspicious of the reporting at a certain point. Right. So I do think, again, proportionality comes back into play. I don't know. I haven't followed closely enough where I would fall on that kind of Jesse spectrum. But this guy, I mean, and I, I don't know about what this guy is up to and what his ideological project is either. But I don't know. It does start to feel like for me, knowing that and not everyone's going to read both articles I'm going to put up. Like to me, it's all about building in to the article that you write that I'm responsible for an accurate engagement with all the points of views while still maintaining what my own political objectives are. And I have a hard time seeing because I will admit to being a rawly political person like other people aren't like that. But that's my personal metric. So when I look at something like the Tom Cotton article, to me, that's that's pure propaganda against my own political ends. And if I were the New York Times, I agree with you, Glenn, that we shouldn't put our heads in the sand about what people are talking about. But I would choose to have someone write an article that engages with his perspective. But Bree, but I think like I think one of the reasons that people have lost faith in the entire project of journalism is because they know that the real thought process of the people who are calling themselves journalists is not to allow debates to be aired, nor for all sides to be heard, but to kind of massage and manipulate the discourse to go into the direction that they wanted to go in to align better with their political values. But it wasn't a debate, Glenn. And it was one of the things I'm trying to do is like, because I've been, exactly, it's an op-ed, it's a debate. I've been a, No, it's advocate. one side of a debate. It's no, one side I published of a two. I published a refutation oh, no, the no, next not, day. Not yours. The the Tom Cotton example. You asked us about Tom Cotton. Right. Okay. But I mean, in like the Tom Cotton op-ed in that case, the entire regular columnist of the New York Times, every last one of them, was overwhelmingly supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. It was like every day there were eight op-eds in favor of the people who were out in the street protesting. The Tom Cotton op-ed was like one example out of 200 where somebody was saying, wait a minute, I think that this, the unrest that is being caused is now no longer just. It's the role of the government to stop it. That was like one against 200. And the op-ed editor who ended up losing his job, his argument was, I think we ought to air both sides. There's like a real di division in the United States. And why should we only, why should we foreclose 
one side from being heard. We're a newspaper, not a political activist organization. And if we want to have trust in what we're doing, people should see their mentality represented. I, the reason why I published that, that, that op-ed was because I have been, this is the truth, I have been a vocal proponent of reformist prosecutorial policy. I wrote a book on the problems of over-incarceration. I wrote a, the first research paper ever demanding an end to war, the war on drugs by pointing to Portugal's success with drug decriminalization. I think that over-criminalization and over-imprisonment uh, in the United States is one of the main social problems. But I've been hearing increasingly from people who live in these cities and not like conservatives or racists or whatever, but just like professionals and smart people, you have to understand how difficult life has become in these big cities as crime increases. And we want, we think it's dangerous to allow reformist prosecutors to be letting more criminals out of jail rather than keeping them in jail because I don't want my daughter or my child victimized by violent crime. That's a real concern. That's like a real issue. And I wanted to hear that debate. I wanted that debate to air. So I, I lent my forum to that debate in a way that allowed any kind of misleading claims or false claims to be checked. We published, like, um, I forget his name, the Philadelphia reporter who argued against Larry Krasner. We published Ben Spielberg, who was very aggressive in confronting those arguments. And then we published a short response from the original writer. So there was a clash of debate. And my readers loved it. They said, like, this is the kind of thing that's really informative to hear two people who are informed about a topic arguing with one another and engaging instead of feeling like we're being manipulated or pushed into a certain position by someone sitting on a mountaintop. Is there really harm to that, Nathan? Is is there harm to that? And do you think that some of the, the harm that was alleged that would come from the Tom Cotton op-ed was overstated given the overwhelming thrust of every all the other reporting in the New York Times? I think a lot of it depends on how, what you view your role as, right? I mean, if I am the editor of the New York Times in 1973 and Henry Kissinger wants to write an op-ed called Why We Should Nuke the Vietnamese, there is an argument that says, well, the job of the editor of the New York Times op-ed page is to publish the views that people hold. And Henry Kissinger is important. We ought to hear his case for nuking the Vietnamese. And because we at the New York Times are horrified by that, we'll publish him counter arguments. But, but what if he just wanted to write a, what if he just wanted to write an op-ed about why the war in Vietnam was just or why supporting Israeli bombardment of Gaza is just would would. Like instead of making it a ridiculous one, like something more realistic. No, the reason I picked the ridiculous, the ridiculous one is important, right? Because it, it, it's in order to show that you are in fact taking a position on what the boundaries of discourse ought to be as as the editor. So you can have a completely for sure ha hands off approach. I don't take a hands-off approach. My approach is that by publishing something, I am placing it within the realm of legitimate discourse. And if I decide... Absolutely. That Absolutely. If I decide that, well, you know, why we should nuke the Vietnamese, that's ridiculous. But a defense of the Vietnam War itself, you know, this atrocity of a war, which, in fact, when you add it up, is not actually that much different defending the war itself than, uh, than writing the article suggesting we should nuke the Vietnamese, because there's no difference between the effect of two types of bombs in terms right. of... So would you have allowed would you have allowed no. any pro war op eds? No, if you what were I would the have done is engage the arguments. What I would have done is had someone write a, a very, very rigorous discussion of what Henry Kissinger was writing and saying, and they would need to respond to it. And if they were dishonest, if they were trying to massage the truth, then I would push back on them. My job as but, an but editor. Then, but, but, but then all you'll do, just like The New York Times actually has done and CNN has done, is ensure that the only people you're speaking to 
are people who already agree with you. Like 90% of the New York Times readers are Democrats. 91% or 94% of MSNBC viewers are Democrats. And it's because people don't trust that if they go there, they're going to get the full picture. You're going to end up only talking to people. I know the reason you're wrong, Glenn. The reason you're wrong, Glenn, is because at Current Affairs, what we have attracted a lot of conservative readers. And we have not done it by saying that we air both sides. What we have done, the way we attract conservative readers is that when I review a conservative's book, it has block quotes from the book. I don't misrepresent their arguments. I try to be fair. I try and not make personal criticisms. And as a result, a lot of people who disagree with us read us because they are able to trust us without me doing a both sides. I'm neutral. Nathan, what percent of your subscription, your subscribers, do you actually think are genuinely? No, it's it's a small percentage, but it's a it's a very it is a very significant uh, chunk of our readership, and it's the kind of chunk of our readership that I want to expand and that I deliberately write trying to reach. Glenn, what what would be the difference if, say, instead of publishing an op-ed, they had done one of those you know typed up interview transcripts, where there was a journalist eliciting Tom Cotton's opinion or this fellow from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia's uh, opinion in your case about Larry Krasner, but who also had the ability to kind of contemporaneously ask follow-up questions and offer some pushback. It seems to me that that kind of engagement offers something more to learn from and doesn't kind of create the possibility of having a siloed opinion that can be taken out of context for those who maybe would read the Tom Cotton op-ed and say, hey, look, the New York Times validates this opinion, even though I don't read all the other opinions in the New York Times because I am on the right wing. And this this is just validating my opinion or the person who just wants to read the, the first op-ed that you put out. Wouldn't having that kind of an actual engagement, that kind of debate actually offer more of a, a learning opportunity for folks and prevent the possibility of people weaponizing the argument? Yeah. So I would say two things about that. One is, yeah, for sure. That'd be a great thing to do. But if you're going to do that, I don't think it makes a lot of sense only to do that for like conservative writers and allow liberal writers to just publish without challenge, because then you're again creating this perception that you're an outlet designed to advance liberal arguments as opposed to allow this free flow of information. The other thing is that was my intention with publishing a rebuttal to the Larry Krasner thing, which was I felt like someone like Ben Spielberg who has devoted a lot more attention to studying the effects of reform prosecutors, I think he actually lives in Philadelphia or is a big supporter of Larry Krasner, would be a lot more effective than my trying to push back against that argument or writing the argument myself. Mm-hmm. So in a way, that was, I mean, in effect, that that's just another way of doing it. But if you're going to say, hey, when I publish Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, I'm only going to allow them to do it with like, someone accompanying them to fact check in real time. But when I publish, you know, Amy Klobuchar or, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, they have free reign to just write whatever they want. I think you're going to run into that same problem that you're going to lose the trust of a lot of people who are going to perceive that you're not really worthy of their confidence, that you're doing anything other than pushing a political agenda as opposed to trying to inform and stimulate free debate. We've been at this a while now. I really I appreciate both of you taking all this time because I do think that these arguments take time to hash out. And it's why you we get so little productive discourse on Twitter or even in the seven minute segments on, sure. on the nightly news. And you guys have been both very gracious with your time. 
there are still obviously a lot of outstanding disagreements, but I'm curious whether this exchange, Nathan, for you has shifted you at all from the idea that Glenn is in fact moving to the right or is operating, is becoming a, a kind of a cipher for the right, as opposed to someone who is in good faith choosing different priorities as a journalist in this space. Well, I just want to be clear. I, I do not think that Glenn has moved to the right necessarily. And in fact, the argument that I, that I tried to make in my article is a lot of what I focus on my, in my writing is actually how persuasive and effective right-wing arguments can be. And I think that a lot of them are very powerful. I think the critique that I would make is that I think that he, and, and that I, th I still would make, is that I think that he views or has viewed a lot of us as apologists for the Democratic Party, people who, you know, all, all this stuff about, you know, how you're trying to distinguish yourself from your MSNBC watching parents or whatever, without taking seriously the fact that I, we have serious and substantive critiques of some of these positions. I mean, when, when we got into a big fight about the ACLU, whether it valued due process enough, I felt like I just had a different perspective on what valuing due process meant. But I felt like he felt that I was just like a, a liberal who didn't care about due process, right, and cared about social justice. And so I think the critique that I would still make is that I feel like a lot of this stuff feels like questioning our motives in ways that are inaccurate, suggesting that we care about the Democratic Party because we care about increasing its power rather than because we genuinely feel like there are a political ideology, you know, say, oh, well, you're doing things in the service of political ideology is important, right? There are, there are substantive values. Uh, when we talk about the reasons why it's important to get Democrats into power, it is not because we just want to entrench the power of this one party, but because on climate, labor, immigration, workplace safety, etc., there are really, really important fights. And I feel like some of his work has overlooked the threat of the Republican Party and has been a little hyperbolic towards those of us on the Democratic Party who make compromises that we, including like AOC, who make compromises that we think are kind of necessary and treating that as kind of being shills for the, the party, which I don't think of us as. And I, I'd like to have a sort of more good faith disagreement over the over the real arguments. And I, I feel like it's 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 definitely been hard on Twitter. Glenn, I would actually, I wouldn't necessarily frame it as shills for the party, but I, I would disagree. I would disagree with Nathan, as I've argued elsewhere, about kind of the motives underlying some of the members of the Democratic Party. And I think I share your feeling, Glenn, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but that there is a way that the constant pressure to say that Dems are better than Republicans is a way of minimizing the extent to which both are very, very bad and that we have to have an oppositional approach to both parties if we want anything to change. So while I don't agree with kind of impu impugning Nathan's motives per se, I do understand why there is this edginess <laughs> and resistance to wanting to differentiate the parties, even if there are meaningful differences. And to your point about Chomsky and climate, you know, when he came on the show, I was deeply frustrated by the fact that he wanted to use climate as a cultural for why we should vote for Biden without engaging at all in the completely predictable outcome of Biden doing woefully little on climate, too little to save us from the most cataclysmic consequences of climate change. Right. 
Glenn, I wonder if you, at the end of this conversation, feel any differently about what you think your responsibilities might be to clarify your position on principles when you're in conservative spaces in particular, trying to evangelize to a broader audience than you'll get in these lefty spaces that a lot of us are siloed in. Yeah, you know, I acknowledged earlier that I, I I think like the balancing act I'm attempting is a, is a difficult one, and I'm certain I don't navigate it perfectly in all cases. But let me just say, you know, about that question and about the example that you raised, it isn't to me just frustration with the fact that, okay, if Biden is a little bit better on climate than Trump, you're duty bound to do everything possible to remove Trump from office and put Biden in. Because not only do I agree that Biden will do very little on climate for all kinds of reasons, I also think that you then have to weigh the other cost on the other side of the ledger of like the things that Biden's going to be able to do that are bad that Trump wouldn't be able to do because Trump provokes so much resistance, whereas Biden provokes almost none and is in bed with the institutions of power that were undermining Trump in almost every instance and preventing him from doing almost any of the things that he wanted to do. And like ultimately, just like on a personal level, I have to say that like I, you know, I kind of like, look, I I have a very, you know, good life being and I've had a very good life being the kind of journalism I've uh, journalist I've been right, like being very celebrated and admired and like left wing and liberal spaces for the work I did on Snowden for my defense of the civil liberties of of Muslims, as Nathan said, you know, I was one of the people that he admired when he was in college. I think he invited me to speak. I forget the details when he was at Yale Law School. You can have a very, I could have, I was having a very good, comfortable life. I, my books were going on the New York Times bestseller list. Everybody would buy them. I would go speak and there'd be 5,000 people applauding. I made a very conscious effort to want to do things differently because even though it was generating a lot of comfort for my life and lots of benefits, I feel like in a lot of ways, left-wing politics, by which I mean the parts of it that I believe in, like the anti-imperialism agenda, the anti-corporatist agenda, the anti-monopolist agenda, the role that the security state plays in our lives, is kind of like at a dead end. Like I don't feel like there's a lot of progress being made, even though, you know, year after year, there's like, oh, this person won this great primary victory and yay, like Elliot Engel's gone and Jamal, but like, I don't feel like very much progress is being made. And what I wanted to do, what I set out to do is I realize I have a lot of opportunity. I realize I have a lot of leverage to like try a much different approach of trying to figure out where in this matrix and where in like the ideological scramble that has arisen opportunity resides to create new alliances. And so I knew that by doing that, I was going to alienate a lot of previous admirers, supporters, allies, friends, just like I knew I'd be converting previous adversaries, enemies, critics into allies and supporters. And it, ha it hasn't always been an easy process, but the idea that, you know, for example, I'd be doing it for financial gain is preposterous. I was making plenty of money. You can make plenty of money, like just faithfully serving the ideology of the liberal left. It's not like uh, I was deprived before. It's not like other people who are doing it are deprived. I just want to feel like my work is meaningful and I want to experiment with different ways to like get out of these binaries that are so stagnant and so divisive and that produce little more than stagnation where like people who 
actually have a lot more in common in their lives and in their humanity and in their perspective and outlook than our framework permits them to realize can start to find ways to come together. And that's a lot of what I'm doing. And so if you say like, hey, there's an interview on Fox or an interview with this right-wing podcaster who said something that you probably shouldn't have let slide, and it seems like when you do that, you're kind of giving them a pass on things, I can absolutely accept that critique. Like in the moment, it's not always easy to know when to let things go for this broader objective and 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 when you need to kind of draw the line. But I am trying to do something unconventional and I think that therefore a lot of people are going to misunderstand what I'm doing and other people are going to disagree with it. And that's why I, you know, did not take Nathan's article as like a personal attack. I felt like it really is representative of how Nathan sees the world, but it's just not how I see the world any longer. So it's not that I think that Nathan's arguments are invalid. It's just that I think we're doing different projects. And in a lot of cases, not all, that leads us to look at things differently and to make different choices. Hmm. I want to give you a chance to respond, Nathan, if you want to. But I also know you have to jet. I would just point out that I, I do feel like I disagree that there is that left politics is in a dead end because, in part, uh, the project that I'm doing right now involves interviewing hundreds of DSA members around the country. And I think that, in, in many ways, there is a lot of incredibly exciting work being done on the left, not by forging new alliances with parts of the so-called populist right, but through looking to the local and state level and doing a lot of work that doesn't get very much attention. This is the Chicago DSA building up uh, city council people people trying to get municipal control over their utilities through the Austin DSA, trying to get paid sick leave. People around the country who are organizing and who are building tenant unions and who are trying to unionize their workplaces and that the left, in fact, is not is in one of its most exciting moments ever. We're not uh, just faced with the, the choice. Do we, uh, you know, uncritically support Joe Biden or not? Do we just do we just get into line? Do we rally behind the Democratic Party? But in fact, that there is a vibrant left organization that is doing its best to build some independent left political power outside the, the party. And that is exciting. And that's the project that I want to be a part of. Well, we can have a whole other episode about whether or not there's legitimate skepticism of that project with the barriers to that kind of work within the Democratic Party are, whether or not the DSA is going to be open to third party runs and a more adversarial approach, the willingness to be critical of certain members of the squad and elected officials and all of that we should have at another date. But I've kept you both here for a really long time. I really appreciate it, though, because these conversations don't have to happen often enough and they do take time. And I hope it continues after this podcast. Glenn, where can people find you in your work? They can find me at Substack and Twitter. And also my columns uh, with the Brazilian magazine Carta Capital are published once every other week and typically in English as well. Awesome. And Nathan? I am at uh, currentaffairs.org for my writing and patreon.com slash currentaffairs for the Current Affairs podcast. We have a beautiful print edition of our magazine that everyone should subscribe to. It is truly beautiful. I encourage you all to support both gentlemen's work. And thank you again for your time, guys. Keep the faith. <laughs>